Monsters have taken their place among cinematic history, but who are the real monsters? Are they the scaly creatures that haunt our nightmares? Or are they the person you see every day just casually walking down the street? What happens when man outweighs the monster on the screen and creep into our lives and dreams? With our co-hosts Joe Radazzo, Vicky Ray, and Keith Shago, they will uncover who are the real villains as we explore the classic cinema along with some modern greats and find the monster within us. Hello, welcome to the Let Your License Podcast, and it's season six. We'll be doing our two for one, so this will be Eminem, which is Monsters and Mad Men. And before we get started, let's find out who's with us. we got Joe Randazzo with us. Hello, Joe. Good morning, everyone. And we had Vicky Ray with us, who's actually taking a powder. There you are, Vicky. Hello. <laughs> Hello, everybody. And I'm your host, Keith Shago. Before we get started, let's find out who's with us. Well, oh, God. Keith obviously needs more coffee, but I'm here and Joe's here. And I have not <laughs> been up to a whole lot. Although I did finish Cobra Kai and I started doing, what was I, I was watching Domner. What was it? It's on Netflix. I'm up to episode five. I saw oh. your message that it's really, really creepy. I'm, it's I'm dark as fuck, it isn't it? Mm. I haven't seen it yet. I'm it's gonna, sort of I'm like that movie Golden Glove. You know, it makes me want to take a shower. The first episode, it made me want to take a shower. So I knew I was going to cringe all the way through. So I've gotten to episode five and I kept going on with House of Dragon and what else was going on? Oh, yeah. And the new Rings trilogy. Or not trilogy, but um, on a uh, Amazon Lord Prime. I'm really liking that. And like I said, if you if you want to, like I said, screw politics and all that stuff when it comes to uh, getting into controversial shit on Facebook, jump onto a Game of Thrones thread or the one for the rings. Those people will cut you if you're wrong. <laughs> it's just like I very rarely say anything because they will descend <laughs> upon you like a plague of locusts if you're wrong. But they don't like that you have just their favorite character. You know, like somebody went in there, like, well, Tyler, my son already ruined it for me because Renera, she gets eaten by her brother's dragon probably in season two or three, but people forget about that, that as it was foretold by Geoffrey in the regular Game of Thrones, so everybody just trip balls on that one. <laughs> but anyway, I've got to go see Pearl as soon as I can. I got Asher, so I can't watch it with him, obviously, but cannot wait to see it. I've heard good things. Matthew I... had a really glowing recommend on that. I was just reading right before we came on uh, in Variety that there's people talking about how Mia Goth should probably get a Best Actress nomination for it, but she probably won't because it's a horror horror film. And I like like you, I'm like, all right, I've seen X. I got to just... I did rip the band-aid off. I got to go to the theater. And yeah, see I got to go see it. Just, I can't wait for it. It's so good that Martin Scorsese is yes! talking about it. I know it's Martin so Scorsese was giving it like a holy shit moment. And it's like, if he thinks it's great, then it's got to be. Well, I mean, not that. I mean, he's probably predicted bad baddies in the past. I mean, he liked I it. But I mean, anybody. it's just the fact that he came out publicly and said it was, you know, 
an awesome flick. But I mean, you knew it was going to be good because I didn't really was pleasantly surprised about X. I didn't really think I was going to like it. But, you know, other than geriatric sex, which I always talk about all the time. It's a fucking great movie. I'm just missed. It. Like, is it that much better than X that people are talking about? Well, did you about read this? Matthew Rockmeyer's interview? Uh, uh, no, right I did not. About it? I did not. I mean, he's really good at his reviews. I got to try to get him to let us print some of his reviews. But um, he he gave it such. I mean, just the way he went through it, it's like now I know I got to go see it. But just because the way he, he did, you know, way he explained, he never gives anything away. But it was just an awesome inter uh, review. I'm just going to have to go check it out. Let's yeah, just tell it is. Maybe, maybe Monday or Tuesday I'll, I'll check it out. Hmm. What about yourself, Joe? What have you been up to? Uh, a lot of work. Uh, a lot of work. I finally put in some vacation time for mid-October. So I'll finally but you went to work things. yesterday, didn't you? You weren't supposed to. Oh, no, I was, working, no, I was supposed to. I, 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 oh, was I thought supposed they were supposed to. Was exhausted. I'm just I'm so exhausted from work now that I'm like two days off. Don't do it anymore. And I realized I'm the only one of everybody at work that hasn't taken any time off yet this year. So I'm like, let me let me do that. That's a vacay uh, coming up, don't you? I just put in for it uh, earlier this week. So finally, well deserved, to, sweetie. Huh? <laughs> well deserved. I know I'm going to I'm going to enjoy. I don't know what I'm doing yet. I might go to New York and see my nephew. There you so go. I'm just going to. I'm just going to take the time to just maybe just recharge, maybe not even go anywhere. Maybe just lay on the couch. Just for a chill. Week. Um, besides that, I've been, uh, I've been going through my, you know, my, my daily movies today. I've got to watch a, uh, a foreign language horror film is the challenge for today. So I've got a bunch of ideas for what I'm going to watch. Uh, the, for which the, one for foreign language? I like a good one every so often. My roommate's uh, father, uh, Sean's father, Sean Stephan, who's on the um, the podcast on the Batman episodes, uh, his father for Christmas gave me a horror movie from the Criterion Collection called The Cremator. It's a Polish film from the 60s. Ooh, Ooh the Polish even. They have and no filters. <laughs> it's funny because I never heard of it. And then I'm seeing like it's on like all these lists of like the best horror movies you've never and, seen. And I've like, never I, heard of it. I've never heard of that one. So I'll probably look mm -hmm. it up then. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a Criterion release, so who knows where it might be. It might be streaming somewhere, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I'm probably going to check that out today. Um, I've got a couple of uh, couple of horror films from Mexico from the 30s that, I want, that I've been wanting to check out. And that so was an interesting website of the 20s that you sent me the other day ago. <laughs> oh, that's the Pearl's <laughs> website. That's, that's the official watch list of like, of like different movies for Pearl. Uh, or different, oh my uh, God, I didn't get through most Pearl. of it. My husband uh, was like, what the hell are you watching? I got some link jokes at me. 1920s porn. I know. <laughs> some of it hardcore, too. Where was this shit when I was writing stuff, like writing papers in college? It's just like, come on. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I so missed out on the internet back in the day. Well, there, I mean, there, there was no internet. So who was going to release, you know? Uh, we had microfiche. Remember microfiche? Yeah. <laughs> Who's gonna Who's gonna yeah. release porn from the 1920s? You know, I back, don't know, but I think we it's funny kids. as shit seeing some. But you know, some of it it's actually not not the porn part. But I mean, it's beautifully filmed. Some of it. Oh, there's I some mean, burlesque stuff in there. There's yeah. Uh, there's yeah. It, it was definitely interesting website. 
I remember uh, uh, something weird video in the nineties was releasing a lot of old, but I, I don't think I, I didn't see anything that far back, like the twenties. Some of the stuff I saw from something weird video would be like the fifties and sixties, like just strip teases and stuff like that. Well, they, they had special, do. special pictures back in the day. Cause you know, everybody yeah. wanted boobies, even in the 1900s and the 1860s. Yep. I mean, there was boobies. Boobies have always been the downfall of man. I swear to God. If you've ever seen <laughs> um, uh, Michael Powell's uh, peeping Tom, there's you know the 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 shop uh the, the the grocery store the guy the guy goes in and he asks for the the special what was the special photography or something like that and he'll pull out like a binder and the guy will flip through it and i'll take that one i'll take that one i'll take that one so it's been around forever yeah I mean, as long, I mean the egyptians had it i mean everybody <laughs> it's just one of those things we're just a weird species we really are <laughs> <laughs> we're very what's the word visual <laughs> <Like, laughs> <these> men are <laughs> it's it's almost as as if sex is something very common and normal and we will definitely begin to that with one of the movies today no no not in this country i mean you're either for it or you're a gimmick Actually, you know everybody's doing it they just don't want to talk about it <laughs> Actually, both, both of the movies today actually do have some tinge of sexuality. Yeah, you know, t- uh, tinge, yeah. The, the second one's definitely got some tinge. Oh, the second one's more than a tinge. <laughs> it's tinge city. <laughs> anyway. Keith, what are you about you, Keith? Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I've been, I bought Stommer. I finished it. Oh, you it's did? It's good. I, okay. Yeah, I just think that people need to re- remember that it's Ryan Murphy. So there's some facts that kind of been shoved Somebody in. Somebody told me in one of my right? horror groups that they were, they didn't want to watch the whole thing because they were horrified over his Adam's apple as it was. <laughs> like Evan Peters. I guess that American horror story thing still going on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's- there's some kind of weird, I mean, they make some you know john wayne gacy makes an appearance that's in one episode and they kind of like say they're almost the same person but they're not it's totally two different way two different right. things you know john it's wayne gacy was take, driven, though well john wayne gacy was driven by sex and jo- jeffrey Dahmer was driven by loneliness yeah so there's a and difference abandonment there, that, issues clearly abandonment had abandonment issues and stuff I like that with his chemical thing. imbalances I was always under the impression that he had good parents, but apparently no. <laughs> no, 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 he didn't. Apparently actually. not. <laughs> no. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about someone who was an alcoholic by the age of fourteen. Yeah, his mom well. abandoned him and everything. It's worth the watch. Like I said, I'm only up to episode. Yeah, it's five. good. I Evan had, Peters I had, does a fantastic. He does a fantastic job. So he does. He really is a good actor. He is. I mean, he's creepy as hell, but he's a good actor. What is it? He's eight episodes. What? Eight episodes, ten. I think nine. it's ten. Isn't nine. It? Nine. No, nine. Nine episodes. Right. Yeah, but Evan Evan Peters is very very good in it, and uh, everyone's very very good in it. Um, they tried to make it. They're try, they tried to put a little bit of wokeness in it, which kind of doesn't really fit because it it wasn't about race with him. I mean, the police probably the police investigation that probably more about race, but not right. Right. Well, it's more about homophobia as, with those nitwits. But well, I mean, in the day and around that time, I mean, God forbid. I mean, if something happens and you said you were gay, police policemen and nurses yeah. and doctors will not touch you. Oh, I know. I mean, they're probably that was that was still yeah. when AIDS was still kind of in kind of the, fear, the, even in the yeah. beginning. Of it. 
And they, I mean, that, they really didn't care about, I felt sorry for the gays that, I mean, just the gay, I mean, I would hate to be a dating gay male back in that time. Really? Well, seriously. I was a back in, I was back in that day. Trust me. I know. I know it, well, it had day. to be, it had to be scary. I mean, just kind of. Well, I mean, the, sc- the scary, the scariest thing is that basically you couldn't, uh, people, you wouldn't get hired. People could fire you yeah. at that time. Um, I mean, for some reason I for never I never had a problem basically myself, but I know plenty of people who did. Right. I right. know people who went to doctors and their doctors dropped them. They couldn't go to hospitals. Hospitals wouldn't see I them. I remember those days. Yes, I do. I remember them, people so. getting turned away that had it. It was terrible. Yeah, well, even people who didn't have it. I mean, you know, we were not allowed to get we were not allowed to get blood. We we're not allowed to get blood. You know, it's all those other things. That but, you know, you got to wonder, you know, it's like I, I, I'm not trying to bash the police, but, you know, they could have investigated that 14 year old kid just a little bit before they left him there. You know, well, I mean, the, the yeah, thing, go ahead. I mean, the thing is there with that whole thing is, is that, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that could have been handled better and stuff like this. But again, you're in the middle of the AIDS crisis, and the first, right. well, the guy said he goes, I, "Oh, I need to, I need to delouse myself and take a really hot shower," and because he thought, "Oh, he's going to catch something from cooties." Him. Yeah, what a bunch of friggin' morons! Well, it wasn't cooties. He thought he was going to get AIDS. Yeah, pretty, pretty much it. That's what people thought. Yeah, you know, all, yeah, if you, if you if you if people thought that if you breathe the same air as a gay person, you're going to get AIDS. And that that was up until like 1989, 1990. Easy, easy. We're Ryan. <laughs> That was uh, Carl Malone uh, to the Utah Jazz in 1996 when Magic Johnson returned to the NBA. Yeah. Was making a big stink about what if I catch AIDS from the from the sweat. The from sweat. The sky. Yeah. I remember that. By oh, then, my God. The ignorance. By then, we should have known better. <laughs> by then, I think we did. But people were still assholes about it. Well, look at the bullying of Ryan White. Yeah. A little kid who got it. Or John, uh, or Paul Michael Glacier's whole family getting it for, because they were hemophiliacs and because of... I didn't know that. Died. His whole family got it? All, all his kids and his wife, they all died. They, no they, they way! Died. I never read that. How sad. Tragic. Yeah. Oh my god. And, you know, it, it, it caused him jobs and everything in, a, in Hollywood and stuff like that because his wife and children got it and yeah so I mean I remember when soap operas were just getting to that point of trying to step up the gay involvement in their shows and I remember a couple of actors just totally got blacklisted because they they portrayed a, a gay person I mean it was just stupid back then I mean, I mean, I think and I think that's I mean when it comes to the Dahmer thing I think they probably should have explain that that well look more in on that than try to sit there and say that jeff is killing black people because they were black yeah he was it he it was it was attracted to men of all times it was was about his sexual sexual attraction and not having them leave that leave him because he would grandma grandma threw out his mannequin yeah so, but, people. <laughs> but, but saying that i mean you know I, it's kind of weird because you got the sick vaccination with them but you kind of feel sorry for him because you just think that christ almighty if maybe if his parents and reached had a, out and, and reached out and had a little bit of therapy and understood what was going on empathy. Might, have, just empathy. might have been a bit might have been a different situation altogether but anyway well, i think he didn't like doing what he was doing i honestly don't think he liked killing you know, some of the well, testimony I've read. I mean, the thing is, what, what I had problems with Ryan Murphy stuff anyway is that 
even with the divine feuds and, you know, and even with his thing about Hattie O'Daniel at the Oscars, which is a total fiction. I mean, she was right. allowed at the Oscars. She, she sat sitting in the back of the room, which is unfair, but she didn't, wasn't made to sit outside until her name was called. Like That's they a said. Lie. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, so, so I hate that he kind of twists things to sit there and get this narrative that he's trying to push. Well, and Netflix. I think that's, uh, well, no, no, that's Ryan Netflix. Murphy. Ryan Murphy does that with everything. And that, that kind of, and if I just think that basically, I think they could have been a bit more honest and realistic about the situation, which is frightening in its own way anyway. Okay. Yeah. They didn't need to ad lib on the frightening, the frightening fact. You know, and, and trying to, and, you know, try to t- try to put Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Gein and John Wayne Gacy in the same block. They're different. They're two different. They're three different kinds. I of think they characters. were just going off. Well, I don't think Gacy was a cannibal. Gacy wasn't a cannibal. Gacy was driven by lust. Basically, Gacy was a pedophile that got caught, went to jail, and then he did what most pedophiles do when they get out: is I need to kill the victims now, yeah, so that way I don't go back in. Um, Can you imagine guy- living next door to John Wayne Gacy, and that wonderful smell just wafted through the. <laughs> Oh, and then, and then Ed, Ed Gein was someone totally different. He was he was dressed in people's skins. He, I mean, he he killed two women, but mostly he was mostly a grave robber anyway. So that's a totally different thing than that than Jeffrey Dahmer. And that's Dahmer. like when uh, they tried to, when, when to, try to block when... these people in the same. And serial killers are a lot more complex than that. There are a lot of different reasons. And when Joe's yeah. friends that they did their hex and arcane, one of their ones they did was Ed Gain. That was one of my favorite episodes those girls did. I love it. I wish oh, they, they did more like that. They live right there too, so that they were they were able to get to everything really quickly. That was so cool. I love that episode. I think I've watched it three times just because the Ed Gain stuff. Yeah. To be honest, if they they probably should have turned his house into a museum, that, that town would make so much money off of Ed Gain's <laughs> house. Didn't they? Didn't they steamroll it though? I think they got rid of it. They they tend whenever a serial killer happens in any area, whether it's Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy or um, you know Plains Plainsville, Wisconsin, they tend to steamroll and just empty out the whole. You know, you know. I mean, they. I mean, I always think what they should do is probably like turn it into a park and to honor the victims, maybe. Yeah, but it's, but it's almost like what they want to do is just steamroll it and pretend it never happened. But of course, that's the problem. We always want to get rid of things because we don't want to ever think back on it and how we can change it. And that's just yeah. A good but no example. matter no no matter how you bury anything, the more you bury it, the more it tends to rise to the top. Yeah, anyway. sadly true. I mean, I mean, look at those films you were talking about earlier from the twenties. No matter how much you try to bury, <laughs> they're still there. Still those are, that's just good, clean fun. I'll always leave it to Joe to send me the fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally found out about it like seconds before I sent it to you. I was, I was, I forgot where I saw it, but somebody posted like, oh yeah, there's all this vintage burlesque and, and stuff like that. Uh, related yeah. to you always send things at an inopportune moment because oh, like, I usually have it pulled up on one of my computers. <laughs> my old man walks in, he goes, are you bored, Vic? <laughs> no, I'm doing research. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, that, it's like you know, it's quite funny that you have like all these Oscar-winning movies and stuff like this, but it's but the scenes that the ones that what's the ones that always banned to the top that are that are more alive today than any of those Oscar winners? Those films that were banned and like criticized how horrible they are. <laughs> well, I was saying that <laughs> during, during the uh, the King Kong podcast, I was like, who the fuck talks about Cavalcade? Cavalcade won Best Picture that year. Nobody talks about it. Everyone yeah, talks about wow. King Kong still to this day, 90 years later. So, 
God, that, always... that, what staying power, though, some of those films got, though. 90 oh, years yeah. later. RKO well, I mean, really pushed them I out. I mean, look at, Friday, look at Friday 13th, the most disgraced film series of all time, though they make money. And Paramount was so embarrassed by them that, but, you know, they knew that they had to They were embarrassed it by it? I thought it, had, I thought it was well-received. Oh, actually. no, they were, no, no, they were embarrassed Even though they made it. money, they, they were just, they hated them. I never watched them. I never watched the series. Oh, no, we mean the movies. <laughs> oh, the, the movie movies. Series. Okay. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, because the movies are well, People love them. Look at the franchise. The movies. Yeah, but Par- Paramount always tried. Paramount always tried to bury them. They hated them. They hated that they were doing them, but they knew that it made money. That's the reason why they were doing them. You know, Freddy Fre- Nightmare on Elm Street. The same thing. You know, the the house that New Line, uh, the house that Freddy built, New Line, felt yeah. the same kind of way. New Line put a little bust of Freddy up front though, and put the the house that Freddy built. It seems like they were a little more accepting of look this this is who we are this is how hey universal the the universal monsters were the ones that got them out of the depression because people were going to see dracula frankenstein the mummy and all that stuff so my mother said that they love they spent their she was a little girl during depression she's always telling me it was five or ten cents to go watch the movies and get your popcorn she says that's that's the only thing that kept them going sometimes it was the well, you, you, in those days you went for the whole day as well, didn't you? Yeah, so. they, they, yeah. there was like, and you got your news there too. But, and, you know, they um, had the news reels and uh, I think it was cartoons, uh, shorts, yeah, Flash Gordon yeah. shorts. It was or, it was an event. I forget which one of the film historians that, that covers the Universal movies, specifically talking about Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, said that when he went in, it cost him like a nickel to get in, and back then you could stay the whole day. He said, I stayed and watched the movie four times because he's like, I didn't expect what I saw on screen. So that's just the way the theaters were back then. Yeah. Also, I I remember when I was a kid, if you walked in in the middle of a movie, you could stay until the part you walked in on. I remember that. Oh, really? I don't remember that. (sighs) Well, I remember my mom, before she got married, her and her girlfriend went to see West Side Story and they spent the whole day watching it. And (laughs) they loved it. She's like, just loved it. I love that like, though. I still I haven't seen the new one. I still have neither have I. I'm, um, I'm, I'm you, you'll be you'll be seeing it in December. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I guess yeah, I guess so I gotta doing, check my list again. We're doing both of them. I was like, I'm just gonna save it for December at this point. Yeah, I guess I, I, I want to watch it. Uh, uh, Spielberg's new movie looks looks really good too. The uh, the Fablemans. I that hmm. looks like a it looks like it's gonna be really really good. So yes. Seems like there's some good stuff. I mean, good TV coming out anyway. Chucky's starting soon. Hellraiser looks interesting. That started yeah, it looks that interesting. Series. I saw the trailer. Kind of looks pretty good. I, I mean, as the Cenobites are all they're they're not sexual creatures anyway, so nobody should be freaking out over the female Cenobite. I don't want to hear their bullshit. Leave it alone. Just watch it. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you, you guys did a you guys did a book to screen on Hellraiser, right? No, we did book the screen on Cabal, uh, which was uh, Nightbreed. Oh, okay. We should do yeah. Hellraiser. Well, Hellraiser is the base on the short, but it's, but yeah, I mean, I try to stay away from the big, the big move, the big ones, because everyone and their dogs cover the big ones. So, yeah. So try to take like a sideways plan on those. So,
Well, this brings us to our first film. Obviously, I forgot to tell you what we're doing. The two films we're doing. We're doing <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon and A Shape of Water. It's been one of those weeks, folks. And our first film is Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a 1954 American black and white 3D monster horror film produced by William Alland and directed by Jack Arnold from a screenplay by Henry Essex and Arthur Ross and a story by Morris Zim. It stars Richard Colson, Julia Adams, Richard Denning, Antonio Marano, Nestra Pava, and Whit Bissell. The film's plot follows a group of scientists who enter encounter a pristine, ambiguous humanoid in the waters of the Amazon. The creature, also known as the Gill Man, was played by Ben Chapman on land and by Riku Browning underwater. Produced and distributed by Universal International, Creature from the Black Room premiered in Detroit on February 12th, 1954, and was released on a regional basis, opening on various dates. Creature from the Black Room was filmed in three dimensionals and originally projected by the polarized light method the audience wore viewers with gray polarizing filters, similar to the viewers most commonly used today. Because of the brief 1950s 3D film fad had peaked in the mid 1950s, 53 and was fading fast in early 1954, many of the audience actually saw the film flat in two dimensions. Typically, the film was shown in 3D in large downtown theaters and flat in similar neighborhood theaters. In 1975, Creature from the Black Moon was released in theaters in the red and blue glass anagram 3D format, which was also used for a 1980s home video release on beta and VHS video cassettes. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer from the Black Lagoon and be right back. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before, in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. Welcome back to Literary Legends Podcast. We're discussing Creature from the Black Lagoon and starting with you, Vix. What are your thoughts of the Creature from the Black Lagoon? Well, one, I was like, this week old, this week old. When I found out it was 3D, I had no clue that was in 3D. I did not know. And I, just by watching it in black and white, I, I never I never understood that it was in 3D. But now I'm kind of curious how to watch it in 3D. I wish there was an old cinema out there doing that old stuff around here most of the time. But oh, the the Blu-ray has a 3D, uh, 3D glasses version. and all that stuff. Really, I'm gonna have to check that uh -huh. out. But I, I thought it was a, 
I got a kick out of a lot of it. You know how, well, I used to be an archeologist and, and stuff and I dabbled with paleontology every once in a while. So I got a kick out of how, you know, the, the hand was like sticking out of the, the bank, you know, the Devonian or Pleistocene era hand, whichever era they were putting it in. Because it's like, people just don't rip shit out. And it's like cringe, like no. And the way they just handle shit, but it's Hollywood, I get that. But I, I really got a kick out of, you know, how this monster kind of, I don't know. He, I, 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 the one on the one hand, you had two actors. One was on land, and one was doing it in the water, and they were both of different sizes. One was taller, one was shorter, so they had to have two different molds for this, as it was. And, uh, and I, I thought it was cool that how they dramatized the Amazon River. This was like down by Pensacola they were filming this, and then in Hollywood. Which, I, I mean, they did a really good job of hiding the fact that it wasn't the Amazon. So I give them credits for that back then. Um, I got a kick out of, was it, what was her name? Adams. What was her name? Julie Adams. Yeah, um, she, I've, she was <laughs> back in the day, I guess people had different visions of beauty. I always get a kick out of the mistletoe bra era. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I've got to find one. And next time we do a podcast, I'm just going to show up with mistletoe someday. And I'm going to just. <laughs> Turn sideways for everybody. That just don't get it. <laughs> Somebody explained the mistletoe thing to me for for whatever it was back then. I guess that was considered attractive. I think it looks uncomfortable, but it's it, it's a great. It's one of those. It's it's definitely the creature feature that you have to watch because you can't say you're a horror aficionado at all if you do not watch this. And then you got the music, which they insisted they use that loud throughout the whole film. I mean, you know you're watching The Creature of the Black Lagoon if you are a mile away, if you hear that soundtrack. <laughs> Just because it's so intense, you know. The da, da, da. Well, interestingly, and interesting enough, one of the composers for the soundtrack was Henry Mancini. It wasn't really. I didn't see that when I was yeah. doing my reading. That's interesting. You know, you know who yeah, did they, like Moon River and the Pink Panther and, you know. Yeah, they split up the uh, they split up the the score between uh, between Mancini. Hans Salter would would do the the, the more horrific uh, stuff. I forget who the third composer was. There was there were three because uh, they what they did was they played to the strengths. Herman Stein. That's who it was. They they played to the strength okay. of each composer, and I think. If I remember correctly, none of them liked that creature sting because it was completely not, it's not musical at all. It's just jumping out at you. And I, again, I, I love it, but it could be just because I've seen the movie so many times and it's just, to me, it's I just that like. I credit for swimming underwater with that shit on. For uh, 300 then. pounds, apparently. I mean, I don't know how he did it. Honestly. I think, I think we ought to, I think we need to mention Millicent Patrick. Millicent Patrick is the designer of the monster. And she did not they, get any credit. She didn't get any credit at the time. She's now getting credit now. Finally. Millicent, uh, Millicent Patrick's father was the chief architect of the Hearst Castle as well. And she grew up off the Hearst Castle. Wow. But, but another thing about Millicent Patrick that you might want to, that's also a great big interest, is that she probably has one of the biggest monster creations of all time in Fantasia, Night of Bald Mountain, the great big black creature that comes out of the mountain. That's her design. Is that her doing that? Yeah. That's so cool. And Bella Lugosi posing for it. Yeah. And Who was good, the former uh, Frankenstein actor that turned down the main role? Glenn Strange. Who was it? Glenn Strange. 
Was it? Okay. I couldn't he find was the, that. He was the monster in um how wait, yeah, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah, that's okay. You're right. That's right. Sorry, Keith. So I mean, she that, didn't get any credit, but she's got a lot of uh, uh, stuff like that to her credit, and they well, never another gave thing her that, Another thing about, but another thing about Millicent um, Patrick that you like, if you're an Abbott Costello fan, she's in Abbott Costello meet Captain Kid. She's in that film. She's done one, a she, she's done a lot of uncredited roles as well. Right. Um, she there's an excellent book about her that I suggest that you read called The Woman from the Black Lagoon. Interesting. About about her life and stuff like this. Um, I wonder, I do you think they didn't ago. give her credit? Please tell me you don't think it's just basically sexist. But was it? It was sexist because she's a woman. Yeah, that's why. And she had she had numerous talents. So she was in 21 films. Um, she drew concept art for countless others, performed as a concert pianist, became the first female animator that Disney ever hired. Before Creature from the Black Lagoon, she sketched various monster body parts for Universal. And this gave her an opportunity to shine, and they still didn't give her credit for it. The funny thing about her as well, when I was reading the book about her life sort of thing, um, and it, again, this was sent to me to do a review on, so I didn't know nothing about this um, a couple of years ago. But apparently she went to dress dressed in the nines. She came up and, you know, and she had her black taffeta dress on and she had her ready pearls and she was always she's dressed. She's a rather attractive woman, though. And and she was very, but she's very, very stylized. She's very classy as well, sort of thing. So it's kind of like, and yeah, she, she was just a classy person all the way around. So it's kind of like, so when you see her and then you think of the creature of the black moon, and then you had Fantasia onto her, it's like, God almighty, she's like, she's pretty much the queen of like my favorite films when I was growing up. You know, my, I mean, Creature Black, Black Lagoon for me was one of my favorite monster movies when I was growing up. That was Loved definitely it. a monster movie matinee, at least every other month. <laughs> it was. Well, I saw it in 3D here in London. I they had a special, they had a special screening of it in Leicester uh, up in England. And um, I went up there with Sean, who I was with at the time. And I got to see it in 3D and it was fantastic. And, you know, the thing is you can't, once you know it's in 3D, you can tell where the 3D comes like at the beginning of the earth and you have the rocks moving at you and they coming at you and, you know, when they're finding this thing. And they, I, remember, I just remember the underwater sequences were just kind of beautiful because it just adds another dimension because when they're flat, they, you know, when he's, when she's swimming and he's swimming underneath her sort of thing. But when you see it in 3D, they actually look a lot more aligned than they do mm -hmm, in, the, mm -hmm. in the flat version. So. It was beautifully filmed. It really was. I love that black and white print, though. I don't know. There's just something about it. Don't know I mean, why. another thing about Creature from the Black Lagoon, it's basically the King Kong template, if you I think was, about it. Kinda. I was about to say that. It's the same basic plot as King Kong. With a yeah. with a smaller budget and a smaller crew. Well, this is an we'll RKO we'll film, right? Now. No, no, this, this is, is uh, universal. universal. I think RKO universal. Okay. RKO might well, have not. Yeah, you. I think RKO was on its was on they its last legs or gone. I mean, I've read something about RKO somewhere. But I mean, if you think about it, you know, modern man goes to where they shouldn't go and come across this person that they want, and then they find this they monster just that, screw that with falls them. in love with a woman, and then they want to exploit that per that monster sort of thing, and yeah. You know, and then, but and, and then, like King Kong, you end up feeling sorry for the creature. They I always feel sorry for the creature. They what? said he was modeled after the Academy Award. They managed to snag up a coming filmmaker. Apparently, he had a resume to direct the film. Was it fifty one? Was it? They said something about 
he kept it the certificate of the uh I don't know why they would do it as an Academy Award, but there was some inspiration there with this guy doing that. I don't Weird. know. That. It doesn't look like an Academy Award at all. So I don't even know why that was in there. But if you do think about it, the monster's just, li- you know, the creature in this case, just living his life. And then all these people show up and. No, boobs. I'm telling you, it's the phone. downfall of every male. He <laughs> saw tit. That's all it takes. King Kong, tit. I mean, it's just all about boobs with you guys. <laughs> well, we probably should. We probably should discuss how kind of, kind of sexual the whole underwater sequence is. Well, yeah, yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't bringing her down there to watch television. Well, when, you know, I have. You know, I think we have to give a little bit of credit to the female character in this film. Anyway, first of all, she's a scientist. She's right, got brains. She's smart. Yeah, she's smart. Um, if you look at it, she's the one driving the speedboat. I mean, that that's, yeah. that must have been quite a thing for this time period. I mean, she's and all the, the men that... were dropping like flies. She was still persevering. <laughs> yeah, but I was saying, but she she had brains, and at the same time, she said, "Oh, we can't hurt him. We can't hurt him." She's well, the she's one not that the you value know, of the fine. Well, she's also the voice of region, reason, and the whole thing like, "Oh, we need to protect you because no, I can protect myself." Which you know, for this time period, I mean, that's quite a feat for a woman in this kind of a film at this time period. So, yeah, it was fifty four, so correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, you know, this we're, is we're this so is the height of the nineteen fifties. You know, two point four children, the model housewife, and all this stuff is going on in, in society. True, that, that is a good point. I never it's, thought of that, but that yeah, is we're a very so good point. The idea of the final girl now that I guess, yeah. I, I, now well, who was actually the first final girl? Was it Faye Ray? We talked about this once. Who was the first final girl? We figured it out. We tried to figure it out one time. Hey, it could well, be Faye think, Ray. Could be Evil and Angel. Well, I mean, you can go back to the silence with Phantom of the Opera. The True. Yeah, Mary Philbin. Phantom of the Opera. Mary Philbin could be. And yeah. there was Nosferatu. He had that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I think there's always been a final girl. I mean, I think I think the reason why you always have the final girl anyway is because you kind of want the weaker, what was considered the weaker sex to triumph over right. all, against the odds. Well, it? let's face it. I know people don't like to hear about it, but we are built different than men, you know? So, I mean, I, mean, well, I, I kind would of it... miss the fact that guys would really like to save the damsel in distress. Personally, Not I don't want to change because my tire I know, on the side of my no, I'm, I'm quite thankful for today because I now know that if I'm on Titanic 2 and the boat sinks, that's I'm right, baby. A, I'm now going to get a lifeboat. Because women <laughs> Women want the same rights, and so they're going to go down with the ship, and y'all get to live this time. There you yeah, go. Equal rights, babe. Equal rights. <laughs> you fought for it. I'm with Men you. Men and children first. <laughs> Sit down, you're rocking the it. boat. <laughs> so, but you know, the interesting thing about it is when you when you do see the the swimming scene when he first sees her, um, she's backlit, so. Oh, that's right. That's right. When, when you see the light shining down on her, th- down through everything, like if you couldn't even, like the creature can't even, t- is she naked? He's never seen anything like this before. He doesn't, he doesn't but know. We don't this know what his species looks like. Let's face it. Somebody had to have him. Was he an egg? Was he like, is he a, a, a amphibious land to whatever creature? Because he can't breathe out of water. For too well, long. he does have a relative that comes back in the sequel. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, we 
we get a little insight from Sally Hawkins in the uh, the next movie on right, uh, right on how it works. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. You know that Clint well, Eastwood was in the 1955 sequel. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. I didn't yeah, know he's a, he's a scientist. Yeah, he does. No one even he doesn't even get credit in the movie for it though. Back then, they didn't put his name on there. Well, that might. I mean, at ba- back in those days, anyway. I mean, you didn't get the long list of credits anyway in a movie. That's you kind of got like the main people, and then, and then you got fifty thousand gaffers. He was. Uh, <laughs> I think he was also Tarantula. Was that the other one? Secretary to the costumer. Secretary <laughs> to, to, to the, the gaffer. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different now. But I, I think Eastwood was also in. I want to say he was in Tarantula also. Which is another Jack yeah. Arnold movie. Wait, Jack Arnold didn't direct the sequel. But well, yeah, did, he's. Did I we, think... Did we do Tarantula? No, we did them. We did them. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We did them. We did not do Tarantula yet. Yeah. Uh, tarantula. <laughs> that big spider, that poor thing. Incidentally, directed by the same director of Creature from the Black Lagoon, Jack Arnold, who is kind of a golden boy at this point in Universal because he, he was the guy that they were going to for all these monster movies at that point. See, he's the one that lived, right? He's the, the romantic interest of the lady. No, he's the director. director. Oh, Jack, Jack, Arnold's the director. Jack Arnold's the director. Okay, okay. I get confused. He directed the film. So. Uh, but yeah, the uh, uh, Richard Carlson is the um, the romantic lead who lives. Uh, what was the other actor's name? The blonde-haired guy who's really handsome. And- he's a very handsome dude. I was surprised that he wasn't the lead seriously because he's the sexy richard denning yes denning um yeah well i i guess they wanted somebody who yeah like they wanted the guy who was really attractive but kind of douchey right because they think because they think otherwise if he's really bad boy mentality maybe a little bit yeah because if you had him be really really smart really rich really successful really handsome then no one would no one would relate to him at that point i think that's why he had to kind of uh, be the secondary Oh, excuse yeah. me. Crazy. He's always he's both of them show up in a lot of these these fifties horror movies though they pop up all the time. Well, Universal had their their contract players and they would just kind of they they'd be like oh well uh, we have we have Vicky for for uh, for a year uh, when you come in on Tuesday Vicky yeah mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna go to you know lot seventeen and do this movie and uh, yeah you're gonna go to this one and do this movie so. They just had like this rotating stable of stars. And when you watch a lot of these movies, because there was no home media really to, to speak of. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I think I was talking to you about that a couple of days ago. Maybe even last week we were talking about, it's like, wow, Dracula has the same music as Frankenstein. It's got the same people in it for back then. And, you, and I never that, noticed that until last week. Some of the, some of the music from uh, some of the older Universal movies pop up in this too, because there was no home media. So how would you like the how idea would you, know you or remember? remember yeah, because uh, if you if you saw Frankenstein in 1931, and you're not seeing Fr- Bride of, you, there's no re-release of Frankenstein before Bride of Frankenstein comes out. So how are you going to see it? So it doesn't matter if you know uh, that's the actors true. Are, Another good point. The main actors had to be. Um, well, I mean, another thing you have to remember is that you know we did what what happened to Baby Jane, and we you watched the feud, and the whole thing is that you know. Bet um, Betty Davis was a Warner. Yeah. Um, Joan Crawford was MGM, and then and then she came over to Warner, and then she went over to somewhere else. The or Judy Garland. Movie. Every Judy Garland film you'll see until she's had her breakdown is MGM. They're all MGM yep. films. 
Every that was a soul-crushing last few episodes of the feud. I've been trying to forget about that because it was so incredibly sad. Yeah, but but the thing yeah, is, was, is that you know, but no matter no matter what star you look at anyway, whether it's you know so any expendable, of stars, people that spit you up, use you, and spit you out. It's awful. Well, but but what I'm saying is, any star that you know from any of this time period up until 1964, 65. Every movie they did was for the same studio, unless they were loaned out every once in a while, right, which is very right. rare. You know, well, but if they loaned that they loaned them out. They did a trade off for one film, and then they'll go back. Like Marilyn, all Marilyn Monroe films are all Warner films. Yeah, she had her own production uh, company though. James she? Cagney uh, would be the outlier in that because James Cagney would constantly fight with Warner Brothers, uh, leave to do his own thing for a little while, and then come back. So, yeah, they were. They, if you really look at it, that's why you get the Warner Gangsters, the Universal Monsters. You know, that's that's why these movies are the way they are, because yeah. uh, you had the same stable for basically everything. They did rush that sequel in 1955 to that. I didn't see how well it did in the box office, though. Did it? it oh, they did, all did well. They did do well. Yeah, there was a yeah, third. Came, yeah, there's a third. Yeah, um, the only reason I knew that Clint Eastwood was in that movie was because of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> They're oh like, yeah, they, oh, they, they Clint Eastwood. Yeah, they, they. I mean, the, well, after his line of dialogue, they go, "Yeah, that was terrible. We're never going to see this guy again." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the problem. I mean, the I guess. I mean, I get Creature was the film, you know, we, Creature from the Back of the made a lot of money. It was a huge success at the time, um, and then they did the return, but like sequels that were around this time universal started spending less money on them as as you know even though return did a good, good volume and then by the time you get the third one you could see where they've actually you know they didn't even have enough money to do the full makeup <laughs> they did the full thing he's just a guy with a head right <laughs> yeah they, they they went with uh we're giving him uh we're giving him a regular human body so he can walk on land so all they had was the creature mask yeah <laughs> Because they, yeah. they didn't want to spend the money on doing a full another full outfit for the guy. And I got to like find that. that one with the giant tree guy carries off the girl. I can't remember the name of it, but it was driving me nuts. I couldn't remember. It was one of those really fucked up B movies for back in the day. Mm-hmm. Black and white. It was a tree thing that was carrying a girl. Mm-hmm. I've got to find it and I'll send you the clip. It's funny as hell. It's not ringing a bell for me either. No, you you'll know it if you see it. I think I mean, it was a tree. What Joe was saying, I mean, the film is very, very sexual anyway. The whole oh, yeah. creature and the way that's done with the creature swimming underneath her and she's swimming over the top and right. all that underwater sequences and stuff well, like that. Well, surely the mean, babes in his kingdom have boobs. <laughs> well, I mean, but the thing is, is I mean, the thing is, is it, it shows like what you're living in a very, very censorship time basically you have to be right. very very careful i mean you can't have couples in bed together couples who are married are not allowed right. to share a bed on screen or tv at right. this point and it's like so how do we how do we express sexuality between the creature and the woman and the way that they express it they do get away with it it's a fantastically way to do it you know because you really have to think outside the box it was subliminal little things in a little there. bit i caught it i know you guys did oh yeah i mean if uh, you could if you compare if you compare it to 25 years earlier where you have Maureen O'Sullivan swimming naked with Tarzan. I mean, they've, you know, I mean, they can't do that anymore, you know. No, they, you know. no. Or what was no. that movie? Oh, God, what was her name? Oh, gosh. Read that, read that. What was her name? She was in that movie. Uh, she was had to be naked. Oh, God, it was about the witches. Samantha Stevens beginning. Oh, my God, I'm having a blonde moment here. I married a witch. 
I married a witch. Yeah, because she was supposed to be, you know, not she had no clothes on in that scene. And that was like the 30s or the early 40s, I think. So, you know, the more we examine these older films, I am just, wow, the crap they got away with. And that, I mean, you hear more about bullshit now about people getting offended about this and that than you heard back then. Well, well, back then, the the Catholic leagues were the ones who who kind of pushed for the Hays Code. They were the ones that, and um, what was that? Was Sign of the Cross, I think, was the one that kind of, that kind of got them. That that, that kind of made, made the Catholic leagues like really push for, for the Hayes Code. I think it was a combination yeah. of all those movies and all the William Wellman pictures. So they, Cecil B. Cecil B. DeMille kind of wind them up. Used to wind them up before the Hayes Code came through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, well, but if you look at Cecil Wellman. D. DeMille films, there's these great big biblical epics with orgies going on in the background, basically. You know, At least yeah. the ones in the twenties, yeah, <laughs> the twenties and thirties, they were not not in the new versions that he that he filmed when he sanitized them in uh, no, in the 50s. not your Ten Commandments or your, the story of Ruth, which we'll get into the next one, but right. in those biblical epics. No, the Ten Commandments. Well, the, the Israelites were supposed to be orgying it up when Moses came down and got pissed and smashed, the, you know, the Ten Commandments. So there was all kinds of hanky panky going on. In that movie, supposedly supposed to, but we had the the Hayes Code was really, really in full force at that point, sort of thing. I mean, to be honest, in the eighties, we had a, quite a bit of problems as well. I mean, we had the Mothers Political League in the eighties, so we can't say much about that. I mean, the shit that the you know horror films had to go through just to get past these uptight mothers. <laughs> oh, uh, with Silent Night, Deadly Night being being probably the the biggest one that they that they went after because you can't her run into killer or what they got they were pissed off about the second one too yeah I mean, because it's because it was ruining santa claus for kids that's why i don't know but that's i don't i find it i just loved it personally but then again we don't we're not nice people i know you're not <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think the the, the problem I think the thing is is that in the, in the '80s, what you had was you, you had don't the let little movement. kids watch it. You know, well, no, you had. To, but first of all, you had the underground movement, so therefore, it's like okay, you might be you might not be able to get your film into cineplexes, but we probably can get you into the drive-in. That's, <laughs> That's right. God, I miss drive-ins. I wish we had yeah. one around and here. There's a, there's a lot of art cinemas and stuff like that going around as well, like little cinemas that you could play that were independently i forget and if that, that didn't work you could you know you could just wait a few a few months and uh get it when it comes out on vhs yeah, yeah. go rent it at the video yeah. store yeah you couldn't buy yeah. videos back then yeah. they were too expensive oh my yeah. god yes oh my god you remember that they were like 25 bucks remember buying a video back then it was no it was like more like 70 or 80 was it? They, I can't remember. They were, yeah. they were priced for rental. Uh, they were priced that the video stores would spend like $70, $80 on one VHS tape yeah. with the idea being you're going to rent it enough times that you're going to make your money back. Yeah. So that that's... Oh, that's I got to look that up. Cost of VHS movie. What year are we looking at? Oh, uh, like 84 or something like yeah. that. Like that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were um, yeah they were expensive. I mean, the thing is, and you couldn't buy videotapes anyway. I mean, there was no store that was selling them at that time. Oh, you're right, eighty or ninety dollars. Holy shit! Why didn't they I remember was, that? That's well, they, crazy. We, because they weren't they weren't marketed towards us to buy. They were only yeah. marketed to video stores. Like you could, like Keith was just saying, you can't go to the store and buy a VHS tape. You had to go through a distributor and get it. 
So a lot of a lot of normal people didn't have that kind of connection. So the video store would just get them and rent them out. I should know that. I used to work in a video store in like 91 night before Justin was born because I wanted to do something. I was bored and I couldn't be an archaeologist anymore. So I, I was like big and pregnant. So this lady gave me a job at the VHS store. And I just loved working there because I would be alone there most of the time and just watch movies and get paid. I mean, it was just a fabulous job. Well, in Tulsa, I worked at Buttons. Um, record and video store and we basically when the show closed we used to like sit there and just sit there and just watch movies on all five screens across that you know because you put the movies on when they're when people yeah. are, and then when the when the store closed then you got out the really good ones <laughs> it's like i think I, yeah. we saw some really crap as well like a certain sacrifice with madonna the, the film that madonna didn't want you to say her first film which i what can understand was that? a certain sacrifice really bad is it that bad? It made, I didn't it know. It made really seeking Susan look like an Oscar-winning film. So, so. Everybody's got to get their start somewhere. Yeah. So, but um, I mean, she still had the annoying talking voice that she still has today. But a, but I mean, with Creature of the Black Lagoon, I mean, the thing is, is like you know, this is this is almost universal trying to come back. And I mean, by this time it's like the universal psycho monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, invisible man, Wolfman, I've all made a comeback. They were making a comeback at the right. cinemas and then they're like, okay, well we let's make a new one. And this is what creature was. And they, yeah, is, I think they succeeded. This is that brief time period where like, this is after those movies had their run and Abner Costello meet Frankenstein and Abner Costello meet the mummy, I think was like a year or two before this. And I think that was the last, and then you go into the creature from the Black Lagoon, and then it's not until like the '60s that, the, that those, uh, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, all that stuff starts hitting TV. Mm. So for a lot of the kids of that era, this was their first like monster, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Even though it's the last one in the cycle, if you're a kid growing up in the '40s and '50s, you didn't see uh, House of Dracula. House of House of Dracula at this point was. 1945 was nine years ago. Right. So to a lot of kids growing up, Creature was the first one. And then you went into seeing all the others. Um, so this you is like magazine, but you did have magazines talking about it. So basically yeah. you read about these films, you know, like, and it, but you didn't, you couldn't see them. Yeah. You know, Monsters of Filmland and all the other monster magazines out of that time. It's like, you know, you just read about them. You saw stills, but you didn't right. see the film. And actually, I actually yeah. interviewed Forrest J. Ackerman, uh, one of his last interviews before he passed away, like uh, twelve years ago. Yeah, it was. It, oh my God, you still uh, got it? Um, Somewhere. I have to see if it. Uh, I have to see if the audio is in my storage because he was so frail that I felt that releasing the audio would be kind of exploitative. So I, yeah. I transcribed the uh, the interview instead because the way he sounded, like mm. he was. 90 something years old he didn't sound healthy and i felt bad just doing the interview because i had booked it with uh uh with his handlers like a couple weeks before oh, and i i, I felt him. awful doing it because i was like i really wanted to do this but at the same time they were like yeah we're uh well usually he wakes up from his nap around this time and i'm like oh man i feel like i feel like i'm exploiting this poor man and i'm, I'm just a fanboy who's just like i'm getting to talk to forrest j ackerman I'm going to talk to the guy who created the famous monsters of film well, he, land. But he, I bet he loved it. Oh, well, he probably did. Yeah. He was telling me about having Dracula's signet ring and all this stuff. And he was one of those guys. God, I'd love to hear that interview, Joe. Um, if you got I'll it, see, if you don't, no problem. I, I really kind of like it. 
I think I still have the CD of it. I I, I can send it to you. Uh, the website that uh, that posted it um, oh, okay. initially is long gone. Oh, so I was gonna write it down. Okay. I have the well. I have I have it transcribed. I can send you the transcription. Uh, that's cool enough. When you don't worry, just put me uh, at a dance. I'd just be curious. I'll do. I'll do it, do it later off. on. But yeah. When did you When did you interview him? 2009 or 2010 wow. right before he died like just wow. like a month before he died um, i think I another thing that's quite amazing about these magazines at that time is that they were done by like one guy producing and everything yes. you know like um i was really in love with remember the scarlet street magazine I remember yeah. that one. I don't well, remember I, that one. I, I don't remember it as like, I, I don't think I grew up. I don't think it, it was ever published while I grew up, but I have issues of it because I I, I went at one it's, point on a monster magazine. I don't really remember like that one. I saw. Well, Scarlet Street kind of ran from like the late 80s into like the 90s. Um, and I can't remember the guy who did it, but I remember like, but I used to buy it. It came out every two months and it was fa fantastic interviews with like Faye Ray and stuff like this. And, but and I remember, like, I contacted the guy to do my subscription. So I contacted the subscription number. And it was the guy who puts the magazine together. It was a one-man shop sort of thing. Yeah. And I was, like, amazed. And I had this long conversation with him. And unfortunately, okay. it, it, it stopped being made because he died, you know. And then, of course, that, that was the end of the magazine. But, I, I mean, that I was a fantastic. I still do the film Sorry. magazine thing. I was at Barnes & Noble the other day. I picked up Film Facts and Dark Side. So I still, I still buy magazines. Oh, no kidding. Those are still out there? Uh, oh, Dark Side is still digital. there. Dark Side uh, is a UK-based one, but if you go to Barnes and Noble, they'll have them like two months behind. Um, Sam Irvin often writes for them. Um, a lot of oh, filmmakers. Yeah. Okay. A lot of filmmakers end up writing for uh, for the Dark Side uh, magazine. Um, but yeah, that's eventually that's what those magazines led to. Is that it's like Castle of Frankenstein and all that stuff. Eventually, you started getting like Joe Dante coming in and writing for them, and uh, David J. Shaw writing for them, and all these guys went on to be, uh, you know, writers, directors, and stuff themselves. Um. So yeah, they they I were mean, a good outlet for monster. And they're and they were people. They weren't people who were doing it for profit. They're people doing it for the love of it. So that's why I think that's why the magazines are so fantastic. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There is a difference for people who just love, just love the art. Yeah. So, uh, so, sometimes um, I get up and I just write about a movie because fuck it. What am I doing today? I enjoy, <laughs> you, you, know? and, you and I, Matthew and there's a few other people. I really enjoy your reviews. With you guys, I see that you guys got one coming out or I see that you wrote one. I will go read it because I really love how you guys review stuff. My, so knowledgeable, I, both of you. My problem with the longer form ones is that I, I keep looking things like I've been writing the same article on uh, uh, the old dark house and the black cat for like a year now, because I keep like looking up different things and I keep wanting to include it. The thing's going to be like a hundred pages long by the time I'm, <laughs> by the time I'm done with it. So, but when it's just like a short, a quick short thing on Facebook, I knock that out in like two minutes. And uh, like I've I don't been know doing how y'all do it. Just like big, bring over the facts. Boom, boom, boom. I'm mean, always amazed when y'all do that. With, with these that I've been just writing up on Facebook daily for, uh, I don't really go too in depth with them. I just kind of write what I think about the film and that's it. Because if I tried to go in depth with it, I'd never get them done. I could never put my, I just can't put my thoughts down like that. I'm too ADHD for one. <laughs> I can't do it. I go bing, bing. I'm all over the place, though. But there is, like he said, there's a like when you love something, and we'll definitely get to that with Del Toro. When you love something, 
obviously you can see yeah. how something is how it's dripping from uh from what some people write or produce or or create so and yeah, the creature was one that inspired a lot of people, and it's still huge to this day. Remember like when he showed up on the Munsters one time? The Guild Man was on the Munsters. He had a little cameo on the Munsters. Well, I think it was was he was he named Uncle Gil? Uh, you might be right. I'd have to look I, it I up, remember. but I, I did remember that he was on the Munsters once. Yeah, and, um, and the creature, as far as like just marketing, Universal has done a great job marketing the creature because he's everywhere. He pops up on everything. I, I I have a poster in my in my storage, a Pepsi and Doritos poster with the creature from Black Lagoon on it. That's, well, it's a, it's it's just like epic. It stands for everything we love in old horror movies, though. I mean, it really does. I mean, he's so significant, like Dracula and and Frankenstein and, and the, the guy man. in a monster suit. It's just a guy in a rubber suit. That's all it is. Yeah, just a regular dude. <laughs> well, or two regular dudes in this two case. regular dudes one short one tall one swimming yeah. one not but the one swimming basically had the worst job of it all i would say I, I just get claustrophobic thinking about being stuck in that outfit and having to swim with that kind of weight. i don't know how he did it well he had and they had he had no oxygen tank either no no it's and amazing. if you look at those shots there's some long shots there where it's basically in one shot you know, not, there's no fancy editing or something like that. Not, you know, especially yeah, those scenes where he's going down into the sea grass and all that crap that's laying around down there. The well, bottom, I mean, I, mean, even, even, I didn't know it. But even when he's swimming upside down, think about it. He's swimming upside down, and I mean, you know what happens when you're swimming like that in the water upside down? Basically, you got the water going into your nostrils and everything, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> and it's probably filling up in a soup too. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it could not have been comfortable. It could not have been. I mean, but what did it take amazing- hours to put that shit on them, too? But it's amazing looking suit. They did a fantastic job. They did the a great job for it back then. Well, she did. She who mm. will not be named, poor woman. Millicent, Millicent yeah. Patrick. So, but for those people who want to know more about her, I really suggest finding the book, The, the Woman from the Black Lagoon. Or even just fantastic. look her up. What a fascinating life. Mm, she's excellent. And the look of her is fantastic as well. Yeah, unappreciated in her own time, definitely. But you know, she still kept strong, and she's still very proud, and she did what she did. And when yeah, you read she about did. her, she's she's a she's a remarkable woman. And yeah, you know, she definitely broke glass ceilings in Hollywood. Yeah. Are you looking for a graphic design that will take you to the next level? Or something that shows confidence within a growing market to help you stand out amongst the crowd? Amazing Designs gives consistent and on-brand designs whether you are looking for something conservative or you want to let your imagination soar. They bring professionalism to a high standard and they are able to visualize your ideas and give them that extra edge. Working one-on-one with their designers will give you a design that will live up to your expectations and more. Affordable, expert designs for all occasions whether it's logos, brochures, or whatever you can dream of. Amazing Designs is your to-go place for creativity and hands-on expertise. Try Amazing Designs today. Contact them via email at amazingdesigns505 at gmail.com. That's amazingdesigns505 at gmail.com or reach out by phone at crunchycold1805-203-0427. We love them so much here at the Literary License Podcast that we use them ourselves. But I'd rather be different than be the same. 
Well, this brings us to our next feature, which is The Shape of Water, which is a 2017 American romantic fantasy film directed by Guillermo del Toro and written by del Toro and Vanessa Taylor. It stars Sally Hawkins, Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Doug Jones, Michael Strahlberg, and Octavia Spencer, set in 1962 Baltimore, Maryland. The film follows a mute cleaner in a high-security government laboratory who falls in love with a captured humanoid amphibian creature and decides to help from him escape from death at the hands of an evil colonel. Filming took place on location in Ontario, Canada from August to November 2016. The Shape of Waters was screened as part of the main competition of the 74th Venice International Film Festival, where it premiered in August 31st, 2017, and is awarded the Golden Lion. It was also screened at 2017 Toronto International Film Festival. It began a limited release in two theaters in New York City on December 1st, 2017, before expanding wide on December 23rd, 2017, and grossed $195 million worldwide. The Shape of Water, acclaimed by critics, was lauded for its acting, screenplay, direction, visuals, production design, cinematography, and musical score. The American Film Institute, selected as one of the top 10 films of 2017, the film received numerous accolades, including 13 nominations at the 90th Academy Awards, winning for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Production Design, and Best Original Score. It would mark the first time since 2003 a film had won Best Picture without featuring on the National Board of Review's Top 10 Films of the Year. It was nominated for seven awards on the 75th Golden Globe Awards, winning for Best Director and Best Original Score, 12 at the 71st. First British Academy Film Awards, winning three awards, including Best Director, and 14 at the 23rd Critics' Choice Awards, winning four awards. A novelation by Del Toro and Daniel Krauss was published on March 6, 2018. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer of Shape of Water and be right back. If I told you about her, the princess without voice... What would I say? Eliza, come on. Eliza, hurry, hurry. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. J'avoue, j'en ai bavé pas vous, mon amour. The natives in the Amazon worshipped it like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. 
can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Eliza. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, she's not even human. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Welcome back to the Legendary Podcast. We're discussing The Shape of Water. And what are your thoughts of this film, Joe? Uh, Joe's well, going to gush. Wait, let me get ready. I mean, let me get my water. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, you know, what are you going to say about, about, you know, it's, it's a monster movie that won Best Picture. It's a monster movie that's just beloved. And you know what? I didn't even put this together until like just a second ago uh, when Keith was going over all the awards. If you really think about it, and we were talking about uh, uh, the horror magazines, the monster movie magazines. All those kids who grew up in the 50s and 60s are now the people by this point, by 2017, who are voting in the Academy. And all those monster kids who grew up loving the creature from the Black Lagoon decided, hey, let's give the let's give the Gill Man an Oscar. Yeah. And the movie's fantastic. It is. The thing, the thing about Del Toro that always gets me every time I watch his movies and uh, recently... Um, my roommate randomly threw on Pacific Rim and I watched, uh, I watched Pacific Rim. And last week I watched I love Pacific uh, Rim. <laughs> it's a great movie. I love watched, um, uh, I watched Crimson Peak, uh, last week. And now, uh, right before we came on this morning, I got up early and watched, uh, the shape of water. I saw it in the theater, but one thing that always gets me about del Toro is he, the man just loves cinema and loves it to such a degree that his movies drip with how much he loves he loves just the history of it yeah he definitely um, loves his job there's no doubt about it as far as performances sally hawkins is just unbelievable with barely ever saying a word you get that little you know you get that little uh that, that little bit at the end when she's sitting across uh um across the aisle from or across the uh the table from uh the asset uh as he's called yeah. You have that brief moment, but beyond that, it's an entirely silent performance and you completely get it. Also, Richard Jenkins as her closeted oh neighbor. He is so <laughs> great in this. He's, he's it's so phenomenal. And you, you get this story of these two lonely people who I, I know, Vicky, when I when I mentioned it, you you might not necessarily agree. But what, what I felt was that what they were establishing was both how lonely uh, right. Richard Jenkins and Sally Hawkins were. And then when they show early on, they show her routine, which is, you know, you get up, you boil the eggs, you masturbate in the bathtub. <laughs> like that's, and I, I read and that. It was as, always with the boiling of the eggs and it cracked me up. Like, oh shit, she's boiling more eggs. <laughs> and <laughs> it was great though. I, it struck me as this is a woman who Lonely. maybe like Richard, like I feel like Richard Jenkins is more hopeful. Uh, because I thought he, they, he, 
he was tragic almost though, because he tried to, to put himself out there and it's like, oh shit, he got slapped down. That was sad. That in in a way, it's kind of like James Whale in the 30s. Uh, because you know, when you when, when you look at the when you look at the Frankenstein films, you kind of you, you kind of relate to the monster. And I, I kind of feel like maybe James Whale kind of felt that way in the 30s because who was he really going to turn to? as a gay man in the 1930s and Richard Jenkins here as a gay man in the 1960s, you like, what are you going to do in that time period? Like, uh, like uh, he's going out there and he's trying to talk to the guy at the pie shop. And as soon as he, as soon as he puts his hands on his hands, the guy pulls away, goes, you and at that point, we now realize the turn in this character, who at this point we thought was such a nice guy, the the guy in the pie shop, like, Oh, he's a decent, decent guy. The black couple comes in and sits and sits at the counter. Hey, you got to go. Yeah, that guy's yes. a douche. Uh, and then when he uh, Jenkins kind of stands up for them and he tells them, well, you know what? You need to go, too. So you kind of see that kind of like that kind of like underlying bigotry. Like everybody is so nice on the surface and but seems really like a nice guy real. on the surface. And then they're they're complete, um, complete scumbags, uh, complete assholes to uh, right. to gays, to blacks, to. Um, but Richard Jenkins, I felt was more hopeful, uh, as far as like wanting to find somebody, it feels like yeah. he gave up hope in his career though. Like, Oh, actually not really. Cause he, he does kind of keep going at it. He just keeps, he, he keeps going at it. She he just keeps stumbling. I just think like there's, I think what it was, we were talking about earlier is I just think that she just kind of was, I think that she wanted something out of life. And I think she expressed that. I don't know if it was a romantic thing. Clearly, I mean, she, you know, she's lonely. She has her routines, you know, she don't have a boyfriend, clearly, you know, and I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, it it just, I get, she just does such a good job at this. I really love her and both her performances. But but everyone in in this film is lonely. Huh? But everyone in this film, but everyone in this film is lonely. Octavia Spencer, she's married and she's lonely. Yeah, that's right. Because her husband, she's always talking about her husband. Um, the wa- the wife, that. the wife who's trying to please Michael Shannon's character, she's lonely. Right. You know, um, the kid, the kids striving. Oh God, for he was such an da- incredible dick. But, in this movie. but but the kids <laughs> striving for affection from their dad are pretty much solitary solitude. I guess well. this is a movie about loneliness. Now that you guys bring those points up like that. Yeah. I guess. And with you know with Sally Hawkins' character anyway, I mean, what you got? You got the most loneliness of all. You well, got she was found ba- by the water, and I think what is it, Esposito? Read I didn't know this either. Means like orphan, kind of yeah. whatever. But I was going to ask you guys because this still confounds me. I've watched it twice now, and I didn't know whether the end was a dream or was it the reality. But she has these things on her neck. Was she born of the water in his world? In this world of Del Toro. The and film she was is found a fairy- by the water. Yeah, but the thing is, the film is not a, a realist. It's a, the film is a fairy tale. It's, it's very much a fairy tale. Yeah. Well, and, I know it's then, a fairy tale. I go, but, but I mean, did, was she of the water? I mean, was she a water creature? Well, but her? that de- that depends on your version of happily ever after. Well, I'd like to think that they lived happily ever after because I thought he was a beautiful monster. I mean, he was just beautiful, and he had the little blue. You know, and he'd get all happy and stuff and slayed up. What a beautiful creature he designed for this movie. I mean, it, I mean, it, it's re, it's almost repulsive at the same time, but beautiful. Because she jumps, well, she has sex with him eventually. And the little black lady's going, well, 
does he have a, you know, and she's going, well, she makes this motion where this cod piece kind of opens up. <laughs> well, I mean, Del Tor- this is Del Toro's love, love letter for Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. You know, he said that over and over and over again when, whenever he talks about this film sort of thing. And, he, and he's, he's been thinking about doing this for 10 years. He finally got, it took him 10 years to get the story fully developed and what he wanted to look. But Another thing that Del Toro does is that I didn't realize it because I watched all the extras that are on the Blu-ray disc and every single little thing on the film set is because he's put it there. Like Everything his birthday present. Thing. He had a little birthday thing. His birthday's October 9th. And then when they but, do that, that uh, was it October 10th, the faded day when the rains come and she's got to get him back to the water, apparently. Mm-hmm. And they show that uh, there's a lingering shot on the rip-off daily calendar says October 9th, which is his birthday. So he gave himself a little thingy there, you know, to his birthday. But but he also, but there's also a lot of nods to sort of thing. Like if you look at the wallpaper, it's waves. If you look at, even even on the black, even on the blank, even the blank thing without the wallpaper, it's just like, but if you look at the texture in the wall, it's, there's a, it's the shadow is the shadowing of waves on all the well on all the walls and stuff like this. And you also and, have uh, loose lips, sink ships uh, yeah. at at the at the job. It's on a poster on the wall. You, know, you basically keep mm-hmm. quiet. and and everything there is also uh, water related in some way. And so, so yeah, yeah. Um, and he, and he has a habit of painting every if every film he does that is painted. Rather even if it's Hellboy and Hellboy Two, right. or even when it's Blade Two, there's all this other stuff going. If you know, you can watch them over and over. But if you look beyond the actors in front of you, it's like you see all this other stuff going on at the same time. I think so, it's kind of funny that he was. They say he was drunk when he pitched the movie to Hawkins. <laughs> Apparently, he was kind of lit. They were some Hollywood something or other, and. Uh, he just decided he wanted, that's when he decided, you know, he was going to make the pitch. And then it I was saw uh, Octavia Spencer uh, said that he took her out to, to breakfast. It was supposed to be like a quick 30 minutes. He's going to pitch me this idea and we're just going to do it over breakfast. And she said it ended up going like three and a half hours. And she's just like, everything he said just felt like magic. So yeah, she, right. she was just entranced by just his passion he had. So yeah, this film was definitely something. I love Del, Del Toro when he is, um, when he's at that moment where he's passionate about a movie, those are his best. Uh, it's this one, Pan's Labyrinth. Crimson Peak, which I heard I wasn't good, but then I when I watched it. it finally the other day, I was like, even for a, even if it's the weakest Del Toro movie, it's still Guillermo Del Toro. It's still just a phenomenal movie. Uh, even Mimic. Mimic's good film as well. Oh my God, Mimic, Mimic makes my... Skin crawl Kronos. only because I live in Texas and I freaking hate cockroaches. That Kronos. Kronos is a fantastic his verse on the whole boring vampire thing. Right, just put a whole new spin uh, on it. Uh, and actually, though, the first podcast I did with you guys, we covered The Devil's Backbone, which is, I think, probably his legitimately scariest film. Mm. So, and, and the other thing about him that I really love is he he will fund and produce movies for unknown filmmakers if he likes their idea that's another thing that i really admire el fernato which is a masterpiece the orphanage is a masterpiece that film i was just about to bring that one up because i'm looking right at it on my shelf i was like the orphan because that's what brought me to 
like the orphanage was one of those. Where he he just, also did. He really represented the, the, the characters who don't have any trouble communicating their feelings or anything to the audience are the mute ones. It's the monster and the girl, you know, and I mean, it's just their, the way the way they just they respond to each other. It's so simpatico. My God. You know, right down to where she feeds him, like, you know, she brings eggs for lunch and she starts feeding him to get to know him. You know, let's also let's also give credit to Doug Jones, because everybody talks about how excellent Sally Hawkins is in this. Doug Jones is is doing all this emoting under this giant rubber suit. Right. That covers most of his face. So he's doing a fantastic job. Oh, absolutely. Don't and you think that got, Doug Jones is still is to Del Toro what Andy Serkis is to Peter Jackson? Absolutely. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> is. He definitely is. He's he's Abe in the Hellboy series. Uh, he's, well. he's the monster with the uh, the eyeball in his hand and uh and oh. Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. That just uh, creeps see, me out that eyeball see, but, and the hand thing. That's not, it gives me cringe. I don't know why. But but this is the thing about Del Toro that I think that makes him the filmmaker he is today. He believes in, he said that you should never have too much CGI. You should have not too much visual effects. And you should have no too much old school. You should make sure that it's a, it's a well even blend. And that's what you get in all his films. Like, like for instance, the creature here. Yes. It's all practical effects, right. but the eyes, but the eyes are what digital because they had to emote more emotions with the eyes sort of thing. But based on Doug Jones's face that they were able to emote the, thingy yeah. so he's able to bring all these pieces together is he a merman or is he just like a creature i mean well, he's, a he, he's a humanoid um basically he's a merman i guess you could say um i mean the creature designed is kind of it's kind of an interesting thing because it is kind of based on it is based on the creature from the black lagoon but then again it's also based on abe from hellboy but it mm-hmm. also has that element of do you remember those cartoons with Aquaman and they have the little merman creatures with the little yes, um, gold yeah. parts of it? But there's a little bit of that. Sit on Aquaman well. and ride him. Remember that? <laughs> but but they but they has but it has all that, but it has he's, he's taken all these different things for this humanoid creature and then added them into this one creature sort of thing, which has made it very interesting. The, and the other thing I, I haven't, you know, I didn't watch them back to back like this before. Like last night I watched Creature from the Black Lagoon again, and then today. Uh, the Shape of Water. This could be, if you ignore Revenge of the Creature and The Creature Walks Among Us, you could kind of see this as a, as a sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon, the uh, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, because he's able to just kind of just, just heal the bullet wounds, just heal them right off. Yeah. So right. you could conceivably see this as they captured the creature at the end of Creature from the Black Lagoon and they brought him to this lab. And that's where you meet the Sally Hawkins character. And that's, and she releases him back in. And he, she could almost be the, the, you know, the, um, she could almost be Julie Adams in this. Um, she could. So, well, there's also, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on as far as the movies that are playing in the background as well. You have little Colonel with Shirley Hayward. Temple, Shirley Temple, um, Audrey Hepburn, basically Audrey Hepburn. tap dancing with um, Bojangles. Yeah, during that classic sequence sort of thing, which is basically two people from two different sides of the world coming together to be one. Well, they situation. did say her Eliza, Eliza, Eliza's name also has a connection to My Fair Lady. They said both Eliza from Eliza The Shape Doolittle. of Water and Eliza Audrey Hepburn from My Fair Lady are working I class didn't... characters who undergo a transformation 
that allows them to find their own voice. So well, the main, the main, the main film on the at the at the that they're watching that's playing underneath them is Story of Ruth, which is about a woman who falls in love with a pagan god, which is part right. of the Bible's thinking before you know, like, and it's kind of like this bastardization of the story of Ruth from the Bible. Anyway, right. she, she falls in love with this pagan god sort of thing, and then she, then the Bible side of it comes into the movie and for the, right. in the middle of it, then it goes back out to being the pagan sort of thing at the end, and that's what the whole movie is about. And then basically that she's fighting against all odds for a person who is who does not have any rights as being a woman in the biblical time sense. So and then here we got Sally who doesn't have those same kind of rights and people, you know, with the guy coming on to her and what he's saying to her, Michael Shannon's character coming on to her and she really, you know, you know, meandering her way through a, this He was area. kind of a dirtbag, wasn't he in this? He was very favorite character. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> well, this, I mean, but this character does tie in with a lot of Del Toro's um, he's just mean as a striped snake. This guy is the most yeah. But Del, Del, Del Toro in every single, but Del Toro in every single film that he does has one thing in common, and that's do not trust the government man. And he has Absolutely. that in everything. Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. The father is a government who played, man. Who um, devil's back. Devil. Devil's the Devil's backbone. Devil, devil's man. Um, Chronos. Hellboy. Hellboy 2. That's know. right. Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's all about, but he, he's, he's very open about it. He's, you know, he talks about it all the time that, you know, he wants his, he wants his, um he wants his audience that when they walk away from the movie, beware of people in authority. That's his main it's message. Good, he says. It's a good message. It's a very good message. It's great. Yeah. Michael Shannon does look like he could be related to William Defoe though. Or, or the guy face. used to play, oh God, he played he did Sergeant Song. He was in the Twilight Zone. He died. Oh, what was his name? He reminded me of him too. Uh, Vic Morrow? Yeah, I don't know why. I kept thinking Vic I'm Morrow every time I kept looking at him in this role. When I, when I was actually looking at him in this, and maybe it's just the way he shot, because a lot of times we're, we're kind of looking up at him. Uh, I, I was thinking if, if uh, Del Toro decided to do uh, some kind of variation of like a Frankenstein uh, thing, he could probably be a great Frankenstein monster. But I've always loved Michael Shannon as a villain, though. Like even mm. like people, you know, shit all over Man of Steel, and you know, I'm not I'm not the biggest Zack Snyder fan, not really much of a Zack Snyder fan. But I absolutely love Michael Shannon as General Zod in uh, in Man of Steel. I think he's fantastic. Right. Like I always like him in everything I see him in. Um, uh, Elvis, he, he always he always shoots his bad men shooting up, though Del Toro does. Well, I mean, if you're if you're going Doesn't to he? be portraying authority figures as as you know the bad guys, then yeah, you subjectively want to look up at them because they have to be looking down at you. It's the concept of it's you know punching down. My favorite and, asshole and, and, moment of his during this movie is when he shoves, shoves his covers his wife's mouth when he's having <laughs> sex with her. <laughs> he goes, "Why it? Let's be quiet, honey." It smells. It smells kind of. <laughs> he's, also, he's also an outright racist in the movie too so oh, he's so awful my, my, michael michael shannon's a terrible terrible human being in this movie not michael shannon himself his character i no, don't know michael no. shannon personally probably a lovely <laughs> human being he's just a real douchebag in this. Probably, yeah in this movie he is just over the top just a 
bad, horrible person. And clearly, um, he, he was excited. He was excited by Eliza's silence that she didn't talk. So you knew he was going to go with that. Well, he, he was well they, they established that when he's having sex with his wife because he's covering her mouth and telling yes. her, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, which I never understood anybody wanting silent sex like that. I don't know. Maybe he's yeah, trying to can, concentrate. I guess but, if you're somebody but like... But his character is all, all about control. Yeah, and also, and, and also very, uh, very religious. So it could be uh, sex is a dirty thing, and we kind of have to do it. Which kind of, in a way, is how the Sally Hawkins. But he wasn't nice to his children either, was he? You know? Huh? He wasn't nice to his children either. Though. Well, he's not nice to anybody in this movie. <laughs> Least of all the creature. Even when, like, like I got a feeling when he's talking to Octavia Spencer about uh, about how the creature, you know, he he's a, he doesn't look like my god. Uh, my god looks more like me and you and then he looks at her he looks at this black woman and goes well i guess maybe more like me so he, he does kind of have a god complex too um he definitely i think has a god complex um it, it doesn't have any validity for life or the quality of life he wanted to vivisect this poor thing yeah. well no he want. He i think that, that that because he has i think for me it's all about having having control over every single aspect of your life oh, yeah. and making sure and and if you if you're not have any kind of control then you demand the control like when the guy sits down and goes you know he goes no you call me this you you know yeah that sort of thing is making sure that every sure. yeah everything in his world has to be controlled and if he doesn't have control he loses it when his, you know, when he comes home and the kids are kind of overly excited, he loses it slightly because it's like, I don't have control of the situation. Everything about him is about control. And when something shows up that kind of questions his control, then he tends to go to the other degree of it. So, you know, instead of like trying to understand, it's like, no, no, sort of thing. Meanwhile, he's also kind of susceptible to some people, like the salesman who sells him the car. He doesn't want that car. Yeah. But next shot, he's driving away with it. So that was a nice a way, car, he's, actually. It's just like, he's yeah. not it, as in control as he thinks he is, and right. it, it, usually it's you know it's the the Napoleonic thing, you know, when 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 you're not like the the, the manager who like if you have a boss, the, the boss at the very top is usually going to be a lot cooler than like the guy in the middle who's trying to get there. Right. Yeah. Speaking of that car, that car when they did that scene, it is beautiful. It almost crashed into Del Toro during a shot that they, they kept that shot in the movie too. Apparently he didn't move and Michael Shannon was supposed to park outside the movie theater and he rushed the car without shifting it out of gear and the car just kept going. And I guess Del Toro said, fuck it. He goes, we're going to, we're going to do this and I'm going to leave this in here. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he just kept he just, rolling. <laughs> he just, tr he just trusted that it was going to work. And it stopped. It at the right, but the thing is, the car stopped. He goes, "Okay, now I can get my shot." You know, that's the thing with these great visionary directors. Sometimes they just trust that things are going to work out in their favor. I, I remember reading, no, it was a, an interview with James Woods where he was talking about uh, uh, filming "Once Upon a Time in America" with Sergio Leone, and mm -hmm. Sergio's just waiting there and waiting there. And James is like, "We're going to lose the shot if because we got to shoot in the daylight. We got to shoot the shot, or we're going to." <laughs> we're going to lose the shot. And Sergio just kept telling him patience, patience. Cause they, uh, and then when they finally shoot the shot, it opened like it, it, he's like almost as if on cue, the skies open up and it starts to rain exactly where Leone wanted it. And sometimes these, these directors who are these great visionary directors, they just trust that the elements are going to, are going to listen to them. 
for some reason. They with, just with leave it guys. to the gods and the fates, you know, and it just, <laughs> hey, it works. It, it works out sometimes. You know, but then again, if it didn't work, we wouldn't hear about it. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> but that particular one stood out to me. And then when you mentioned that car, I started laughing because the car just kept going. And, he, you know, he, they, he never put the car in gear and it just kept rolling. And they left it that, in that scene. I thought that was just wild. It's like, well, that's pretty cool. They just decided to say, screw it. We're going to leave it in there. And it's also right. all about appearances for him, too, because he, he had to go in and get a Cadillac. He may not right. have wanted the uh you know the the green cadillac no it's not green it's teal it's teal and he corrects right. somebody else he's also that kind of dick that like that, that kind of asshole that um will chastise you for not knowing something he just learned five minutes ago yeah mm. yeah how do you not know this I so full of yeah mm. well and normally people who are like that have are probably the ones who have the highest um inferiority complex anyway Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a masking. It's a masking technique. It's the exactly. mask. It's the mask. What's really going on? Right. I wonder what's really you know? going on with that guy, though. What a miserable. Son. Well, basically, he's he's you know basically it's you know he doesn't have the he doesn't have the respect he thinks he should have, and basically with him over controlling situation, he, he it's his way of thinking that he's getting respect, but in all actuality, he's not getting respect at all. It's right. having a counter. It's having a counter effect on him, and of course, when the creature disappears or leaves, um, of course, the respect that he's trying to get to get him further up the ladder is with his boss, which totally throws everything out of whack for him, which makes him go to even a more more of a degree that basically now he looks bad. It's about him looking bad, about him looking like the joke, about him being the punchline, and that's why everything kind of builds builds to the crescendo that it gets kept a lot of stuff in this film though like the like the, the theater that she lives above in this movie is where they 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 debuted this film it was an actual theater yeah the Orpheum theater yeah yeah i didn't know that i, I didn't That's... know it's where they debuted this i didn't know that it's where they held the premiere for this uh, film. They, maybe that was part of the uh maybe that was part of the deal maybe but um let me see where i found that keep talking i'll find it mm -hmm. I, I mean, no, the, I think, the, 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 um, Israel. Go ahead, Keith. But I mean, Del Toro, I mean, I think another thing that he tends to do is he has this beauty in this that could pull through and you're kind of lulled into this whole beauty world. But he really knows how to build the tension. And then when the tension goes, he really knows how to keep that going and still keep the beauty going at the same time. Because normally what you get with a lot of directors, you kind of get this beautiness. And then the, the story takes off and this tension builds and all of a sudden it's like the climax happens and all of a sudden the beauty kind of falls out the side of the window. That's the thing because it all becomes all about tension. But he's able to keep everything really, really well balanced. And I noticed with Michael Shannon's character that the only time that you are level faced with him is that basically is at the end just before the creature kills him. And all of a sudden you're looking up at the creature and then you're looking at the camera's flat on him. So that's the first time the camera moves up to where it's even with Michael Shannon. I thought, I thought that was I was going to die though when the, when, the, when the creature ate his cat, the pet cat, just freaking started <laughs> <laughs> ate the freaking cat's head off. And he was just cool with it. It was just business as usual. <laughs> It's like, oh man, he ate the cat. <laughs> the part that got me was was uh, Dimitri, uh, doctor. You know, the 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 doctor who was uh, you know Russian. Was, that, agent. He was, was he a double agent? Yeah, he was going he was with the KGB and the United States, right? And after he shot, when he's trying to get the information, he, he fish hooks him, sticks his finger through the bullet hole where he just yes! got shot in the cheek and drags him ah! by the bullet.
cringeworthy. That was massive cringe right there. That was cringe. But the thing is, is what do you do to a fish? That's true. That's Same true. Same exactly. Fuck. I, like, I didn't even put that together till just this moment. But yeah, I even said mm-hmm. he fish hooks them. Like, oh shit, yeah, yeah. duh. Like a fish, and and he's and as you got to remember, he's slippery and wet as well while he's doing it. It's out in the middle of a rainstorm, and he goes dragging him. You just imagine yeah. that though. You have a bolt. You have a hole in your face, and puts your finger through it. It drags you by it. Oh, it's painful. Yeah, painful to think about. <laughs> but that's another thing Del Toro does well. I, I absolutely, you know, a lot of face trauma. I'm I'm noticing in his movies. Yeah. Um. Because Richard Jenkins in Crimson Peak, he has his face smashed into the bathtub, uh, into the uh, into the side of the sink, and it caves his face in. So yeah, there's a lot of face trauma in his movies. I'm noticing. Well, the ghost, the ghost boy in Devil's Backbone. The ghost boy in Devil's Backbone, also, yeah. Um, Said that he got a lot of his inspiration. uh, uh, Doug Jones got inspiration from dogs and matadors. I guess it took three hours for Jones to get into the suit and the special makeup become the amphibian man. And he was actually less normal, which was actually less than normal for the actor who appeared as the pale man in Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth and as Abe Sapien in Hellboy movies. Apparently, I guess he just watched the utilization of the movement of those particular um, things, dogs and matadors. Who'd have thought it? Well, Del Toro told Doug Jones that he wanted the humanoid to act like a centurion. So that's why when he gets shot and he shoots up and he stands up at the end and he's like very straight and rigid and like a Santarian. That's how he wanted him to be. Okay, yeah. It premiered in the theater in which it was shot. Okay. So that, yeah, that was probably part of of whatever deal they had. Um, I mean, another interesting thing is the double agent, which would normally in these kind of circumstances, double agent would kind of be the bad guy. And this guy, he's he's kind of switched around. He's, so he's kind of the good guy because the thing is he's he be, he's basically a double agent not because he's trying to sell u.s secrets to the russians is that he thinks the russians will treat the creature better yeah and that and the creature's got the creature if the creature is someone to learn from not to dissect from well yeah. what do you think if you found something like that you know our government in five seconds would have that would start dissecting and i think things apart. to be honest i think i think i think any I think not just the U.S. government. I think any, any regard world. to life or what this thing the, is. Well, know, that's what that's what man that's what man does, doesn't it? Man goes in and destroys. That's oh, why yeah. I'm always saying it's like I always think like you know Star Trek was real. Basically, the reality would be the you know the Star Trek Enterprise going around and Captain Kirk and um, Leonard Nimoy going in and it's like, oh, this looks interesting. Let's take that back to the ship and dissect it. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know that's what would happen. Man, they wanted to dissect the tribbles. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but you know that's what would you know that's what would happen. He's like, if extra if extraterrestrials landed tomorrow, we'd be like, oh my god, we're afraid of them because they're different. Oh my god, they don't believe in Christ. What the hell are we gonna do? <laughs> dissect them, kill them. <laughs> I mean, God, we 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 can't even we can't even deal with people who look like us in a different skin color half the time, <laughs> or, or people who look like us and have a different sexuality or people who look at us and believe in a different god it's like oh no (laughs) and that's also another del toro trope is distrusting the man who's religious distrusting religion is another big trope of del toro's um because it's uh, um the uh the catholic religion at least anyway 
organized religion or just somebody like Michael Shannon, who's kind of Michael Shannon in this movie is a religious bigot. Yeah. Oh uh, my God. He's the worst of both worlds when it comes yeah, to he's, that. Yeah, you know, he he's he's like he's like your Jerry Falwell type, you know, the, right, the kind right. of uh, oh that, don't get me too, started on that douchebag. <laughs> but that's who that he kind of represents. <laughs> but but that's who he represents. But the, but the problem basically is is that you know in philosophy the problem is not the problem is not religion the problem is belief if belief if people change their belief to being an idea things would be a lot easier going yeah but belief because belief is hard to change once you have a belief system it's hard to change that but if your belief system is an idea you be able, you be able to modify as you go through life sort of thing and that's the problem isn't it being stuck in your belief system whatever that may be. He's directed. Yeah. There is a communication between Elisa and uh, Eliza and the, uh, the the beautiful sea creature man was just incomparable. I mean, it was it, they didn't even need subtitles. You just knew, you know, it was so visual. And I mean, he was just a. I mean, he was for for you know a fish man. He wasn't too bad looking. You know, I'd like to see what was under the cod piece. Okay, let's just get to it. <laughs> I was about to say, I want to see it. I want full frontal Gilman. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know much about fish anatomy. I know that fish, you know, both fish, amphibians, and amphibians the same. I mean, um, they do reproduce. It's normally using eggs, and right. then, you know, the the female lays the well, eggs. I mean, he was an amphibian goes, though, so I mean, he could part, go no, back but I mean, and like, forth. Well, so. like, male, like male, like, but then male frogs have sex with female frogs. But I'm not quite sure how the organ part of it works. Some frogs Amphibi- are asexual. But interesting thing about amphibians, which you can look at creature from the black lagoon and the shape of water as well. That amphibians, if there's only one sex, they will change their sex and able right. to reproduce to keep the thing alive that's one of the only that's um, wild isn't it nature is yeah. wicked cool sometimes it just is so that, but i think i think it's only amphibians that can do that i don't think mammals can or maybe re- maybe reptiles maybe i'm not sure but i know amphibians can really i, I think it's an amphibian thing i, I don't know I, I, i'm sure if i looked it up i could find something yeah. so it might be just an amphibian thing so that might explain shape of water and the creature from the lagoon why there might be him but I would imagine that normally what happened if they can reproduce and tends to, I think they end up reproducing as females anyway. So well, that that's how it can... worked in Jurassic Park and look what happened to them. Just look at what <laughs> yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Lysine contingency did not work. <laughs> you know, I also think what's, what you also find here is the strong, the strong sense of family is not a typical family, the family or the family of friends, isn't it? Octavia yeah. Spencer, Richard Jenkins, and Sally Hawkins. That's a family. Yeah, that they're they there are. for each other. They're no matter what. And they're and, and they are basically three misfits in a you know a, a racist space time period. I kind of like how they all shifted the camera so they all smoked during their break. That was kind of cute. But but if you look at them, they're all they're all like they're all social outcasts of that time mm-hmm. period. A they black are. woman. Um, a gay guy and a the woman mute. who can't communicate and the mute who basically if you're disabled in those times they locked you up in a home that never but they don't ever go day. into that that's what i mean that's that i was trying to figure out okay so she's mute like ariel the mermaid okay 
I mean, but she's got gills. I mean, was she not meant for this world? I, well, mean, I know she, it's a fairy well, tale. Well, no, she doesn't have gills. She has scars. Now, whether they turn into gills when she goes in the water, then that's kind of, they look like they do, but there's not well, really Well, you did give her the kiss of life at the end, and they fluffed up. Right, yeah, but you also know that, like, in Mermaid, if you look at the movie Mermaid with Daryl Hannah, that basically when Daryl Hannah ends up with Tom Hanks at the end, and they could dive into the water, that as long as he's holding her hand, that he can breathe under the water. So you might be using that mechanics. I mean, I'm not... I'm not too familiar with the whole mermaid. But it was thing. just I mean, making me nuts because they make a big deal out of making sure you see those scars. Yeah, and then when he kisses sides, her at the side. end, you know they fluff up like she can breathe. Did you see her when she just, you know, when? But when, but at the same time, he does have the ability to heal. That too. Well. That's why I was confused by it. I mean, I never. You so know, he might have been. Have closure. Take, <laughs> well, We're I also, mean, the thing is. It, one or two things could have happened is, is that she might have came from that world sort of thing and been surviving on in our world. Right. Or the kiss of life was able to make sure that she was able to transform to live in his world. But she I just thought it was odd because she was abandoned by the water. They found her bait as a baby by the water. So, I mean, or, I was just trying to figure that out. Or, and she or, my, speak. or my interpretation, her best friend who survives is the narrator. He doesn't know what the hell happens when she goes into the water. This could be his way of coping with everything that happened with. Uh, no, Eliza's still alive out there. This woman that I love that I think is just tremendous. She's alive out there somewhere and she's living her best life because he maybe can't cope with the fact that she's dead. Well, he did carry her into the water. I would like to think that there was a happy ending for all these poor people and creatures and everything. Because I mean, talk about a but shit maybe, world, and that's really what may, the world. Would but do maybe there is. Like but maybe that is a happy ending. Let's sit there and say that basically that you know because he's he's you know he they kind of saying that the humanoid is kind of a god in his own right anyway. Yes, right. And that, he is and a god. Her, he can heal almost. He's, you know? Yeah, he was and able with, to heal Richard and, Jenkins. And with her so giving herself up to this god, which she's done, and then at the end she ends up being with her god, even if she's dead. In that, in that, what, in that, what most people live and die for is to go to the right, righteous. Well, it would also be a good, it could be a good pivotal uh, uh, point of contention with Shannon's character, who is a godly bigot. You know, I mean, so I mean, they use the word God is flown flung around quite a few times. Just the word God. You know. Well, the narrator does say about Shannon's care that he went to whatever heaven or hell he's supposed to go to. Which would be eternal flame, I hope. <laughs> Flames. He was so well, mean. You don't, you don't I mean, know, though. I mean, he's it so depends. Good at it, though. He's so you good know? at making him hate it. I mean, you know I mean, somebody's you at, a great actor when you hate him. But another thing is, if you look at religion anyway, nowhere in the Bible does it say there's only one God. All it says is that you should never yeah. pray to um, any exactly. other God but thee. Yep. That means there might be tons of other gods out there. So there might be tons of little places people can go. I've always liked to think that the Old Testament was a totally different God because that one is just mean as balls. And in the New Testament, you get all this fluffy love shit. So well, it's kind of like it's like I don't have I don't have any children. So I'm bitter. Oh, I got a son now. OK, I'm going to lighten up a little bit. Look at all the just, I mean, the the Old Testament is full of nothing but famine, pestilence, rape, well, murder, I mean, let's put this chaos. <laughs> okay, let me, let me put it this way. This tells you how big of a dick God is, Incest. okay, in the Old Testament. Okay, 
okay, whatever you do, don't look behind you. What you know, the thing is, it's like me if I tell you right well, now, Vicky, oh, yeah, don't look behind like... you, but that's and such is behind you, you just go, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> why do you say that? Or, or this, this is this is another reason why I got God's a big dick person, right? You can have everything, but don't eat fat. First thing you're gonna do is eat fat. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have that apple. Why? I don't know. I'm not supposed to. I'm gonna give it a shot. Got me something. <laughs> I'm at, I'm human. That's what I do. The thing that always turned me off on religion was that the the very first sin that Adam and Eve committed is eating from the tree of knowledge, meaning yeah. don't think about things. You and know, I, and there's I, somebody I, actually not to stray too far with this, but somebody came up with a totally different interpretation that I thought, well, it was a feminist completely, but they're like it was really all about it was all about but JJ, and that's what the apple was, and Adam Adam had gone there. So who knows? Well, I mean, what, what I mean, it's all snake, up for interpretation. But what does but what does snake symbolize? Like, Symbolizes his penis, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so Going back to that cod piece, we'll never know. Yeah. He, 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 he fell under the spell of the cock. <laughs> he ate uh, the apple. Vicky, if you really want to know, I'm sure there's a porn parody out there of the shape I'm of sure water. I'm sure I can find one, Joe. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it exists. But I do know that the Bible is real because the dinosaurs are on Noah's Ark and you can find them in Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to hell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God's got to have us. I mean, God's got to. You know, like if there is a god, he's got a sense of humor. I mean, look at the fucking platypus. I, mean, I know. No one, no one, no one makes that without a sense of humor. Yeah, I really, honestly, that was just a, a genetic abomination. I have no idea what happened to the ductal platypus. Part, part duck, part, part mole. <laughs> and it's got webbed feet. Yeah. You know, know it really is a fucked up looking animal. <laughs> But I heard they're mean. Most, to be honest, most an, most animals in Australia are kind of odd looking anyway. Yeah. Well, they them. were separate, you know, from the other continents yeah. for so long. So. so. But going back to Shape of Water, I mean, so therefore at the ending of it sort of thing, it's like, you know, so even if she died, it might be a happy ending for her anyway. It might not be a happy ending for us, but it could be a happy ending to her. Or she's living down there, living with Ariel. Did you notice King the Triton. thing with the shoes? <laughs> I, you know, did you guys notice the shoes though? I mean, she was look. She liked to look at shoes, and then did you notice how her shoe fell off? I know there were that was for a reason with him because it's the way this director is. I mean, her shoe fell off in the water. You know, when when he there was something about shoes that's gonna bug me until I find out what the deal is with the shoes. There was some symbolism the only, there. The only thing that bothers me about the shape of water is that she's wearing a wool coat, and with her in that water in that wool coat, that's got to be uncomfortable. Nothing's worse yeah. than wet wool. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention how heavy it's going to get, you know. Uh, but well, I, I, I assume that she's still alive. She she's naked under there. She's completely naked with her with her gill man. Yeah, I, I imagine hope that. She, I hope she doesn't that. catch cold because that's this cold looking. Well, she has gills. Well, I mean, to be honest, I mean, if you look at it, she's living in a time first of all where there's not a hot water heater anyway so when that when that bathroom's filling up with water 
and she's like, you know, they're they're having their intimate moment. You know, that's gotta be ice cold water because that hot yeah. water would ran out before that bathtub even filled up. <laughs> I was thinking that maybe the floor would have collapsed under the weight of all that. <laughs> but oh well. I just I always kind of wonder it's like how did they drain that room afterwards? How did that drain? Oh, well, he opened damp. the door and just all smoothed out, but Still, though, you're not going to get rid of that damp smell for a long time after no. that, are you? No. Uh, also, that that poor guy sitting in the theater falling asleep with his mouth open and he gets uh, yeah. a drop of of amphibian fish fuck human water in his mouth. It's just like, what the hell? <laughs> that could not have been the most pleasant thing to have just drop in your mouth. Just an amphibian creature and a woman having sex in the water and it just falls right down your throat. <laughs> I mean, this is the Little Mermaid in reverse as well, isn't it? So the story of Hans Christian. Yeah, Anderson. yeah. She, yeah. yeah, she, she'd rather be under the sea. Yeah, and you know he's out, he's out there, but he's they see a, a fishman, and then he takes her back to his land instead of him staying on land with her, sort of thing. So you have that. Though the real story of the Little Mermaid is a lot more um, harrowing than this story is. That's. Well, well, yeah, Dis when Disney made the movie, <laughs> they had to clean it up a lot. Uh, yeah. The Mermaid? The yeah, old one original. or the new one? Well, well just in her, 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 thing is, her thing is that she can get her voice back and get her fins back, but she has to kill the prince. So she goes with a knife to kill him. He catches her. She realizes that she can't do it. Oh, that's so right. Basically, she basically, she killed. So she. Home. she yeah. Well, she kills herself, dumps into the water, and she's foam. And that, so when you go to the sea and you see the foam, that's her giving blessings to the children. Right. I mean, that's, that's quite a, a totally different spin on well, it. Well, fairy tales. Disney are cut that stories, part out in 1989. Huh? Well, Disney cut that part out in 1989. Uh, well, I mean, Hans Christian Andersen, anyway, is cruel. Every single one of his stories. I mean, look at the little oh. match girl. Poor oh my god, girl that is just a matches. brutally cruel, life is cruel, fucked up shit story, the little match girl. It just is. Well, even, so the snow, even the Snow Queen that they made Frozen is a cruel story, which became yeah. Frozen. That's a cruel story. Cinderella, I mean, the thing is, when the prince goes to, to Cinderella and they're trying on the shoes, first the stepmother cuts off the toe of one evil stepsister. Yeah. He goes wheeling around. The blood fills with blood. The silver fills with blood. So he turns her back, goes to the other sister. They cut her heel off. The slipper fills with blood. So by the time I got to Cinderella, it's so slippery, her foot would fit into it anyway. Oh, <laughs> I wish somebody would do a movie that's just pure fairy tale. Other than, you know, what was that one show that was on for a while I was watching? Uh, uh, Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time, yeah. I would just well, love to see pure freaking fairy tale without that's the funny thing. Well, the funny <laughs> thing about it, if if you watch Stephen Sp Stephen Han Sondheim's musical Into the Woods, it's the it's the real story. It's the fairy tales all coming together is coming together, but their stories are exactly the same way as they are. So all that stuff's in there. You know, basically the wolf is basically played by a man who's got a little girl fetish. You know, hello, little girl. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's always I mean, some kind of underlying weird shit with them stories. When you think about, <laughs> I mean, when you think about the time period they were written in, and all, and fairy tales are just dark in general. They they always they always have been because a lot of times they were also morally they were also supposed to scare kids into acting the right way. Snow White and Rose Red and all that. Well, look at Hansel and Gretel. I mean, basically, fa mother dies, father remarries to a bitch. <laughs> tells the father's like you're either 
you drop those kids off in the middle of the woods or I'm leaving you. So the father's like, okay, drops the kids off in the middle of the woods to starve to death, basically. They get lost and meet, meet this woman who basically has got this house of whatever. Candy. Or whatever. Look like candy. You know, who want, who's trying to fatten them up so she can eat them, sort of thing. And then basically they throw her in the oven, sort of thing, and they run off. And basically... Then you're kind of left wondering they find the father, but the stepmother's missing. So it's the stepmother, the witch they threw in the wall in the thingy. You don't know, but it's like, but they forgive their father. It's like, I feel like fuck you. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> I'd be, yeah, I'd be, quiet. I'd be calling child support CPS. Yeah, but they're like <laughs> but it's like Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables, which are bit it's like the Bible, really. But basically the same, they're about the same thing. They all have like these moral, these moralistic tales that you learn something from, sort of thing. Yeah, but they're not all yeah. Disney princes and princesses, though. That's no. Point. No, when Disney was doing these cartoons, they were cleaning these stories up left and right. Well, you've got to see. I mean, it doesn't matter. I know people get upset with the wokeism now, but they've always had little jokes in there for adults. It just went oh, yeah. all the way back to whenever. You know, they've always had the little innuendo in there. Which well, beauty, but Beauty and the Beast, the Beast does not go back to being human in the original story. She basically goes off and has bestiality for the rest of her life. Basically. Tell us. <laughs> See, I'm telling yeah. you, it's all about the cod piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the animal within. <laughs> it is. Uh, and boobs. It's all about boobs. I know it's oh, yeah, about, about I know it's about boobs with y'all. I just do. I know Keith <laughs> likes boobs. <laughs> <laughs> It's nature's nectar. <laughs> there's a guy. There's a guy that comes into comes into the bar that I work at, and like a lot of time, like he'll see sometimes like some of the some of the women that come in and like sit down and talk with me for a little while, and uh, some you know, and he'll he'll he one day he looks at me and he goes, "Do you have something against women with small breasts?" And I was like. No, not at all. Why? Because every single woman that I see come in, sit, c- c- run up and hug you, sit down with you, all these women with just, you, you know, big busty women. I'm like, shit. <laughs> I guess, I guess it's a theme. I guess it's maybe some... big busty women just naturally gravitate towards you. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I mean, there the you question, have the question. It. The question basically is: Is do you know any of their eye colors? <laughs> yes, do you? Could you? Yeah, that's a good question. Do you? Because <laughs> I'm a gay man, and nine times out of ten, I don't know what eye colors they have. <laughs> it's like I'm just like talking to him. It's like, oh, not at all. No, I, 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 I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Wait, they have eyes? Yeah. <laughs> it's that pointy bra. I'm telling you, you watch them. Things are gonna make it come back. <laughs> Will it pause? I'm telling you, they are. <laughs> I think the bu- I think bu- I mean I think bullet bras kind of went out when push up bras came in, didn't they? So I think that's yeah, probably why I they mean, had the bullet bras. Everything comes back. I've noticed that everything I used to love wearing back mm. in the day is now a big mm. deal. Like plaid bell bottoms, I thought that, but people are wearing. Oh, yeah. them. Didn't Madonna people are walking back pe- the point People are walking around from? like Bay City Rollers. Love yes. this. S A T U R T U R. That's her like Casey the Sunshine Band. That that friggin' don't oh, go. It's stuck go. in my friggin' head for like a week now. 
Uh, did, didn't Madonna try to bring back the pointy bras in the eighties? She had she had bullet yeah. costume kind of breasted. Yeah, thing. she had the yeah. the, cor- the corset for her yeah. blonde ambition tour or something. Yeah, well, um, blonde ambition tour. But I but I think that I think the reason why bullet bras were a big thing in the fifties is probably because at that time women wanted to keep their breasts upwards, and the bullet bra did that. And then the bullet bras went under when they developed the push up bra. Before that, because yeah. there's no push-up bra at the moment. And then the push-up oh, bra. right. I am right, right, baby, on Amazon. I'm getting me some of these. <laughs> <laughs> if they only come this in all colors. There's blue. It's my signature color. <laughs> if, only yeah. this was, if only this was a video podcast. Oh, my God, if it was. We, I've had it, people it, ask us, please do one. And it's like, and, nah. be, and because you got And because you got Amazon Prime, you'll get it tomorrow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I know. I'll have to. I'll, I'm gonna say. You know what? I should actually buy one and see how long it takes for Scott to notice that I got missile pins. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, he's not there now to hear all this. You can just surprise. He him doesn't like care. That. He knows how I am. <laughs> that poor <laughs> bastard. <laughs> he's a good guy, though. I have a. I have a friend who's very. When I was in school, she was very, very endowed, and we, uh, me and my. Um, friend um donnie we used to basically take one of her bras and basically put her heads in her cups of her bras <laughs> Walk around because her, she was so well endowed our heads actually fit into the cup of her bra You're so juvenile no one would even know Poor we thing. were adults. i felt sorry for her actually. i mean <laughs> i mean her back must have been freaking sore but <laughs> so speaking of breasts how did you find holly hawkins breasts here no i'm kidding <laughs> um, she had I had to say, talking about uh, sex, I had to, what I quite liked about this film as well is that Sally Hawkins's character's sexuality is just so natural to her. It wasn't exploitative. Yeah. It wasn't just, no, you know, I like mean, you know, she opens up and basically she's having a little bit of a morning sunshine break for herself. Yeah. And it's just, but it wasn't like intuitive. It's just kind of like, okay, it just felt natural. It's you know just I mean? part of her routine. It's well, just we were laughing routine. about it because I was going to Joe. I go, surely Del Toro has something, you know, boiling eggs and masturbation because it was like it was her routine. Boil I, eggs, go masturbate in the bathtub. I don't, th- I don't, I don't think it's really like like one has anything to do with the other aside from the fact that it's just it what she does. Get up in the morning, do this, do this, do this. It's like when you know, it's it's like get up in the morning, uh, work out, eat breakfast, uh, you know whatever you and know go, go to work to her it's and, i'm gonna run in her life and there and the only way she's anyone's gonna be interested in her or her, any kind of sex life is is she's gonna be pleasuring herself that's it right. that's her life that's that's why i was making because no, that no like, one sees no one sees her as an equal not back then, then they would would they <clears throat> things were well, so even even, even when michael shannon looks at her as a sexual object he's looking at her like a fetish yeah because she doesn't make noise but, but it is a fetish. It's not as a sexual being. It's like, no. oh, this is a fetish. It's not like she's God, a natural know, yeah, person. I wonder if he like got spit on or slapped up after this movie came out. <laughs> you know, is people it, sometimes it, can't celebrate separate reality from the character. I mean, I've seen, I've read about soap opera stars who've actually been accosted in public because they were the asshole on, on the show. So He did oh, he well. did remind me of William Defoe in Streets of Fire, though. If you just put him in that little outfit and the greasy hair. But, yeah, he kind of does. Hammer. <laughs> but as far as Eliza's ritual, that's why, I, that's why I said that I felt like 
she had probably like I feel like she had given up on the idea of sex and companionship. I don't I don't right. feel like she was hopeful at all. I just feel like she's like, I well, this is the way it's for, gonna be. I felt bad for her friend though, and when he finally put himself out there because he thought it might be safe, you know. This, and- there's one thing about that 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 that, that gets me, and it, it, it's the, the the homophobia thing. Like if if he had shaken the guy's hand, everything would be fine. But he fine. puts his hand on his hand. It's like, oh shit, dude, you gotta go. It's 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 always kind of struck me as strange that one form of 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 contact from hand to hand is completely acceptable between two guys, but if you put your hand on somebody's hand, no, it doesn't even well, have to lay, be sexual. Laying lay, lay your hand, laying your hand, on, isn't it? Yeah, laying your hand on top of someone's hand is an intimate thing. Oh yeah, it it is definitely an intimate. It's, thing. it's intimate. Where shaking shaking hands is not intimate. When you when you go palm to palm, there's nothing intimate about palm to palm. Unless you take your hands into that finger thing. <laughs> oh my God, I was just thinking that. It's like, oh man. It's intimate, but it doesn't necessarily. No. It's intimate, but it doesn't necessarily have to be sexually intimate. Like, I, no, I you know, no. my father, when he was sick, I used to hold his hand by the bedside like that all the time. Right. Was, you know, it, yeah, it is. But- it, we live yeah. in a society that is totally. Well, I, I think to be honest, I think I think it's more of an. But I think it's also I think it's also an American thing as well because yeah, if, you like, if you go to like if you go to like France, for Morocco instance. or Saudi Arabia or Italy or something like that, men hold hands and they're just friends. There's nothing going on between them. Yeah, sort of thing. But in America, I think with America, it's kind of it's kind of weird because America and England, the England's the same way, and Ireland. English-speaking countries seem to be very sexually repulsed about things. Everything's very, very, very sexually like non-existent. Like I said, everybody's our, doing. We it love our violence, about it. but it's, you know, it's a bit like we love our violence. But God forbid. So I mean, look at. I mean, think about. It, you know, we love our violence. We can see people getting shot up and killed and everything like that, and it doesn't bother us. But God forbid if we see a nipple on TV. Whoa. Or yeah, breastfeeding. Yeah. Oh my God, breastfeeding is it was a challenge for. Breastfeeding is a weird day. one to me. Breastfeeding is a weird one to me because if I if I see a woman in a movie, just take her top off, nobody nobody bats an eye anymore. But you see someone breastfeeding, suddenly everyone's like repulsed. Like no, literally, what you're repulsed by is their function, the function what they were fucking that's right. for. That's the part that's I, repulsive. But if you know you're is, at spring break and some girl just goes woohoo, whips her tits out, nobody cares. Wahoo! Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, what I what I find funny about the breastfeeding thing, I don't know, I don't know how, about the America side of it, but here, I don't mind it. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't think twice about it. I do have an issue when the person makes a big song and dance about it. Like we, I remember being in Starbucks. So it goes, I'm getting ready to breastfeed now. I'm getting ready to breastfeed. She said like five or six times they started breastfeeding. It's like, I just have an issue it. with that. Where if you just do it, because if you just do it, you don't make no one, no one to think twice about it. But when you make a big song and dance about it, it's a bit like when you're late for a meeting and you walk in late, just sit down and be late for the meeting. Don't tell everyone that you've been late. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so late. I'm so sorry, I'm so late. By the time you get to your chairs, like, shut the fuck up. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's just like, just do it. Just like, you know, be under, you know, you, you don't have to make a song and dance. So what, you're feeding your bre- you're feeding your baby, not a big deal. But I don't need a moment by moment story about it sort of thing. So, but here, I, it's not a big deal here to breastfeed. I don't notice it at all. It doesn't bother me at all. The only I time I've ever kids. noticed. My, my, my Justin was alive. Well, Justin was born 30 years ago this year, but, mm. but Brittany's, you know, going to be 28. 
But I mean, it was, they freaked people out. And I mean, it's just like, I'd be at Six Flags and it's like, my kid's hungry. Y'all going to have to deal with it, you know? I would yeah, I'd I try never... to be private about it, but I mean, it's you know? literally their function. Yeah. But it'd be, yeah, you know what? It wasn't guys it. that would freak out, it was the women. Yeah. Women are the biggest hypocrites ever. Women, oh, women are not, women are not very supportive of each other anyway. No, they're not. They're so, I mean, that's what I'm thing. saying. Is they're so. It, it, it's they're, like I. Not to go too far down this no, rabbit hole, no. but but I but I I have found that when a woman has gotten a promotion or something like that. It's always the other women said that she slept her way there. It's never the men that said that. Where in my experience, no, where places where I like worked, that. I've never, I mean, I've never been in a situation. I mean, it probably does happen, but I've never, I've never are heard a it from a man. Women to each other. They blame it on the uh, patriarchy, but they are helping that patriarchy. But, uh, but, right but, I've, but I've always, but I've always heard that from a woman. I don't know why, sort of things like what. I was like, I'd what? rather work with men. I love <laughs> I men. I'd rather work with men. I mean, we do. I mean, I think we do it another way. I don't think we're probably just not as open as that is, but I always found that a bit odd. So. Well, what we should probably do is we forgot the let's rate creature from the black lagoon four out of four out of five four ah, five out of five what do you what do you rate creature from the black lagoon out of five star Joe. rating let's start out with you vix because you love the side of things yeah <laughs> no I, I definitely have to give a creature of the black, uh, black lagoon a five just because it, it's just everything that we love in horror it just is i mean i can't even say it's horror it's just good clean fun Although I think it's kind of scared me when I was little. I didn't want to go in Lake Ontario for a while the first time I seen it when I was little. So, I mean, it, it kind of had staying power with me. I think it's because of the music, though. That the, I don't know if we should give credit. I know it's that music. Well, I'm just saying it's that freaking music. I mean, through the whole movie, da, 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 you know, I mean, I'm going to the bathroom and I know that the creature is on again because I can hear the music reverberating on the, the surround sound. but no it's an excellent movie and it really i'm glad you brought up uh the millicent because a lot of people don't know that about her Mm -hmm. and how the the, the creature's facial and and all this cool stuff can be and what do you rate shape of water absolute five i'd give it more if i could i love this movie there's just something about it i mean it's like i think I, i was telling i kept thinking she was a hopeful romantic i wanted to see these people happy I mean, what's important with me is I'm I'm not vested in the character. I'm pretty much sure the rest of the film is going to be shit. <laughs> so, but there was it's Del Toro, and I mean he's got this gothic Gotham thing going on too, and it's just it's just a beautiful movie. It's like a, it's a really cool love story. Just, what about yourself, Joe? What do you rate uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon? Five for Creature from the Black Lagoon because it's it. It kind of sets the early standard for what for what a creature movie like this could be, uh, because without it, you don't you you know you don't have a lot of the creature movies. There that was follow. no predecessor, was there for this? There's no predecessor. I mean, there. if you really go back to it, probably King Kong was a predecessor to this, but this was just this was unusually different, though. There's yeah, there's something about the way this one this one hits you. It could be just the the new technology of all this underwater photography that could be part of it too, which was way cool for them. 
I mean, the, the movie itself is beautiful. The creature costume uh, is beautiful and nostalgic. And like, I have it all over my bedroom. I have a little creature from the Black Lagoon, like right next to me. Hey, Keith's got a creature from the Black Lagoon, too. He showed us last week. Y'all are weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Fan I just boys. Love this stuff in general. Like, I. Uh, I got another creature right here. Like, like this, they're all over yeah. the place. I just love the design. I love everything about the creature. So, I, I like, I, it's always gonna have that like, like that like nostalgia bit for me. I absolutely love these movies. What oh, about Shape of Water? Shape of Water also five, but that's more. Uh, I mean, the, the creature design was great in that too. I feel like. Shape of Water is a more complete film because yeah, I agree. Del Toro yeah. was able to do more than um, Jack Arnold was able to do in 54. Um, Del Toro was able to actually overtly show the, you know, just the, the, the attraction, whereas Jack Arnold had to, had to be more subtle about it. Um, in both cases, we have, you know, this underwater intimacy between, between the, the creature and the woman. Uh, and it's just a beautiful fairy tale. Uh, it is. Water. It's beautiful. It's really a beautiful love story. It is beautifully shot, beautifully told, beautifully acted. Like the the, the five principles in it of uh, of uh, Sally Hawkins, um, uh, Jenkins, uh, Spencer, Doug Jones, Shannon. and Michael Shannon are all just so great at everything in this movie. The writing is great. The direction is great. It looks amazing. I everything think they about had fun movie. filming it too. Yeah. I mean it's there's a reason that like this is the only like you know quote unquote monster movie to, to win best picture. I mean you can make a case for others but uh you know for other different uh uh different kinds of monster movies but this this is the only one that's like just like a, a straight up old school monster movie to win best picture i think there's a reason for that yeah it's just it was really, nice really to well see done. it get some awards too though i didn't expect it i saw it in the theater and i remember leaving the theater loving it and i did not expect when the academy i didn't expect a nomination and then when it started winning all the awards i'm like wait a minute is this actually gonna, is this actually gonna take best picture and i love that hollywood cool. has finally begun to embrace horror a lot more because in the last couple in the last couple of years, you also had Get Out do really well at the awards, and I, I I feel like it could be that a lot of these old monster kids are now the you know the sixty and seventy year olds, right. but they're all starting to kind of embrace everything now and be and and be like, no, dude, why are we not talking about how much we love these movies when they're coming out? Why are people only talking about how great, uh, you know, why are we only now lauding King Kong, you know, 70, 80, 90 years later? When, like I said earlier, who remembers Cavalcade? What won Best Picture in 1931? I bet most people can't tell you, but everyone remembers Frankenstein. Yeah. And this, this movie's a celebration of all that. It is. That's a good point, Joe. For me, Creature of the Black Goon is quintessential filmmaking for me it reminds me of my childhood it reminds me of loving it. it reminds me of lo i think he was the first monster i actually loved when i was a child and that love has kind of just grown with me my whole life so um so creature like and even you know and like watching watching it even the science makes a little bit of sense in it as well so they paid a little bit of attention to that so we're you know, sometimes the science, like you watch some of these films and the science is like, okay, this, you know, you gotta, there's gotta be a huge level of 
you know, disbelief that you got to have there. To, to, but the science here kind of does make sense with the lungfish and everything like that. So I realized that they they put a lot of work into the script as well. It wasn't just it just wasn't like it wasn't a throwaway monster movie either. They put a work into it, and and you can see it being lovely put together. And Jack Arnold, I mean, yeah, I mean, he to put all this together and basically have such a, a beautiful looking film for a black and white film at the time. It's beautifully put together, beautifully shot and everything like that, even in 2d and in 3d it's even better, but even in 2d it's beautifully shot shape of water. I'm going to give it a five star rating. I mean, it's one of those films that you, you watch, but you never forget. And it's, it's also one that, you know, when people come over and they haven't seen it, you know, you're going to want to show it off to them. You yeah. got to see this. <laughs> No matter yeah. what. And it, it doesn't matter if they like horror, they don't like fantasy, they don't like, you know, whatever, whatever they're into, they're going to love this film. You just know it's yeah. one of those Del Toro films. And I mean, it's got the brilliance of Pan Labyrinth without the subtitles, really. Right. <laughs> so, so most English speaking people are going to love this film because they don't have to read anything. So that's quite good. But, <laughs> but, but Shame of Water, I just think the whole thing is just beautiful. The whole, everything about it, and, 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 and you're left with it, and you, you, you finish watching it and you're kind of left with a smile on your face and like, oh, that beautiful, you know, and it's very, very rare that you get that in a film. And yeah. then, you're, then, you're, then you basically watch it from beginning to end and you're just in awe of the whole film. Everything about it, you're just in awe of. And yeah. that's what I quite like about Shape of Water. So I'll give that another five star. And last, last week we were talking about how Burton was uh, all style and no substance. Del Toro is both. Del Toro is a lot of style and a lot of substance. And he makes the same type of movies that, that Burton does. Well, like you said, yeah. he loves what he does. And it, his heart pours into it. And you, every you know, you're going to get frame, a good film. So. Every frame of a, of a Guillermo del Toro movie is dripping with his love of cinema. Yeah. And that's why we do what we do. We love cinema. So you appreciate a movie like this. I can't suggest it enough. I think everybody should see it, but that's just my two cents. And, and if you guys are fans of Creature from the Black Lagoon, Jack Arnold's uh, other uh, other two films, of his, two other films of his that I absolutely love, uh, Tarantula and The Incredible Shrinking Man, both are just amazing. Go check yeah. those out. is the end of the little literary license podcast next month our m&m or monsters and madman film will be the extraordinary adventures of adele blanc sec which is a french 2020 sorry which is a french 2010 film and we'll be also covering abbott costello meet the mummy from 1955 i love that movie <laughs> i can't wait for that one <laughs> our books are screen um next week will be uh whatever happened to cousin charlotte written by henry farrell and the film hush hush sweet charlotte from 1964 starring Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland. 
Doctor Who will continue with our episodes coming covering from the 21st of December 1963 to the 1st of February 1964 with the Daleks Part 1. And of course, Batman the Animated Series will be covering four episodes, which will be Pretty Poison, The Underdwellers, POV, and The Forgotten. And of course, Make Remake to carry on with our Mummy theme will be The Mummy from 1932 and The Mummy from 1999, starring Brendan Fraser, whose career is now taking an upsurge again. Yes. So yes, let's for myself. Um, yeah. Well, also, if you're if you're in the United States, October first, uh, Fathom Events is doing the Mummy, the original Mummy that we're covering next month, and the Bride of Frankenstein. I think it's like thirteen dollars to see both, but it's just God, one I gotta time. find something like that around here. Uh, FathomEvents.com. Put in your zip code; it'll show you what theaters near you are showing it because it's going to be a nationwide. Good idea. Thanks, thanks for that link, there, buddy. Yep. So, well, I guess it's good night for myself and good night, Joe. Good night, everyone. Good night, Vix. Good night, everybody. Take care of each other. And we'll see you next week for our interview with IAV Austin on Star of Grace 2 and various other Broadway shows. And our next show will be Hush Hush with Charlotte.
Now stars in the sky refuse to shine Take it from me It's no fun to be alone With the moonlight and memories You went away and my heart went with you Don't know if you don't 